All right, welcome DC fans to another episode of DC Comics News Podcast. This is episode 29. I am Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Uh, and today with me, I have DCN reviewer and host of the Spinnerack Podcast, Mr. Seth Singleton. Seth, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Really looking forward to a great conversation, as always, with a great group. Thank you. And joining us, uh, we also have DCN reviewer and news writer, Brad Felicki. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm doing great. Happy to be and, here. And last but not least, you may know him as the former host of DC All Access. You may know him from the movie Trivia Schmodown, where he was the inner geekdom champion. Or perhaps you know him from the amazing podcast Geek History Lesson. Joining us today is the one, the only, Mr. Jason Inman. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be able to show up at Metropolis and talk about everything DC Comics, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to start off talking a little bit about your upcoming book, uh, Super Soldiers, a salute to the comic book heroes and villains who fought for their country. Uh, you were gracious enough to send us a copy of this to read. And I got to say, this was uh, an amazing book to sit down and read. I loved every oh, second you. of it. Um, so I just wanted to start off, obviously, you know, you were in the military and you know, military stuff is, is very important to you. I know you even do a, uh, a an annual comic book drive for soldiers. So I just kind of wanted to, you know, kind of ask what got you interested in military in the first place? Uh, well, you know, I was when I was in high school, I come from a small town in Kansas, you know, very similar to Superman. <laughs> And I, you know, listened to that recruiter's pitch and I liked the idea of being able to travel the world and see places that I had never seen before. And to be honest with you, I think I had a little bit of my heart of the hero's call of, you know, wanting to do something more than myself. And and, and that's how I joined uh, the Army National Guard and then later the Army and, and, and signed on the dotted line and started traveling the world and stuff. So. Obviously, it means a lot to you, and so you decided you wanted to write a book. How did that all come about? You know, uh, you know, getting the chance to write the book, getting the idea for the book. How how did that all come about? Well, I've had the idea for the book for quite a while because there are so many correlations between comic books and the military. There are so many comic book characters that are in the military, and there are so many soldiers and airmen and marines and and sailors that are fans of comic books. So I, I knew I wanted to do something that sort of talked about both those worlds and how much they're connected. A uh, fun fact, I was actually out last year pitching a uh, Superman book, uh, a nonfiction Superman book, because uh, in secret I have been interviewing Superman creators in the background for about mm, four to five years now, and I've been oh, wow. saving all these answers. And I have about 60 pages of a really cool Superman book, and I pitched it to the publisher that eventually published Super Soldiers, Mango. And they were like, oh, we don't think this is the right year for a Superman book. What else do you got? And then I gave them a short description of what became the book Super Soldiers. And they were like, we like that. Uh, get it to us by December. <laughs> oh, wow. And as any writer <laughs> will tell you, when a, when a publisher of any type says, get it to us by this date, you, you do it. Well, I, I mean, I'm definitely interested in that Superman book, though, I have to say. I hope oh, it does uh, happen. It'll come. I I, I, I kind of think that maybe I, it might be parked until like the 80th. Uh, or wait, it's already been the 80th. Or maybe the 85th, excuse me. <laughs> 85th, yeah. So I know that uh, Seth and Brad had some questions, so uh, I'm going to hop over to Seth and let him uh, ask a couple of his questions. 
Hey, Jason. Thanks for, uh, again, uh, letting us have the chance to read your book. I enjoyed every page. And um, it's it's really hard for me to narrow down some of these questions. But the first one that really comes to mind is, would you mind just explaining how you and the editor and the publishers came to your finals list, which you referenced as being like a Sophie's choice in your honorable mentions? And uh, what part of that process might leave open the chance for a sequel or an expanded version or updated somewhere down the line to include some of the characters you do maybe didn't get a chance to this time? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, luckily, my publisher had n- absolutely no say in my final list. Um, that was completely up to me. So um, as I was getting down the line towards the end of the process and I was writing most of the book, um, my original list actually for this book was 20. I had 20 characters that I wanted to talk about. And in the final version of the book, I had 16. Now, I realized that I could, you know, do all 20, but it would I would have needed more time to write that. And eventually I just decided, no, it's better to to expand more on the 16. Now, there are a lot of heroes that I left out, and I put a, I have an honorable mention chapter. But eventually the list got knocked down about who had similar stories, like whose stories or whose military experiences are basically the same. And who do I think is like the best representation of that person? Now, I know the one that I'm going to get the most flack on is Wolverine, uh, because I've already been talking about the book. Everybody's like, was Wolverine in it? And and I, I I sort of had to come up with arbitrary reasons for why I didn't include those people in the book. And Wolverine, it basically came down to that he served in the Canadian military. I never served in the Canadian military. So I really couldn't talk about that or be an expert on that. Now, I would love to do an expanded version of this or a revised version, you know, down the line someday. And I think if I did Wolverine and some of those characters that you see in the um, honorable mentions chapter, including Wonder Woman, who many people don't may not realize was an army nurse. Um, I would love to bring some of them up to the the main text. I think that would make for a really great revised edition. I know I would really look forward to because when I saw your honorable mentions list, I immediately thought to myself how much I would enjoy reading about those. So I'm really looking forward to that opportunity uh, when it presents itself down the line, because in my opinion, this should be a great success. I'm looking forward to hearing everybody else's feedback Um, as much as I did with the blurbs, which was one of my other questions, if you don't mind me just following up with that, you have so many great blurbs. Is there a favorite story you have or two about getting someone's feedback or blurb? Because I mean, you have so many great names on there from Dan Aykroyd to the who's who of comic, uh, any particular favorite story you have about getting one of those, uh, responses or quotes that you were able to include with this book? Um, I have a, yeah, I totally have a couple stories. Yeah, I have some great endorsements on this book, and I, I try to treat every book I write, every product I write, like it might be the last. Like it might be the last comic book write. I might be the last podcast I ever record. And so for this one, I, I went to the big leagues and I cold emailed a lot of people that I'd never met before, but people that I really admired. And most of them said yes, like Brad Meltzer, who wrote Identity Crisis, who's a great uh, novelist his own right. Uh, I don't really know Brad, but I, I sent him a very lovely email, and he luckily gave it back to me. Um, but the one that was completely gracious and came from a stranger is uh, Mr. Dan Aykroyd himself, uh, you know, the man who co-wrote Ghostbusters. Um, the story of how I got his recommendation and how he got to read the book early is very interesting because I didn't know this 
until very recently, he's a big supporter of veterans. And that's the reason why police and firefighters and soldiers are always in all every one of the Ghostbusters movies. That's Dan. He makes sure that that happens because he respects them so much. And my wife. Yeah, it's really cool. Right. I, I wish they would advertise it more. And. My wife got to do the 35th anniversary fan commentary for the Ghostbusters Blu-ray. It's coming out in a couple months. Um, they they reached out to her because of our podcast, and she got invited. And when she was waiting to record um, that podcast, Dan Aykroyd was there. And she had a conversation with Dan Aykroyd. And uh, in their conversation, she brought up that I was writing this book. And he said, uh, well, send me a copy. I'd love to read it. So I sent him an advanced copy of the book and wrote him a very nice message and said, you know, you met my wife and very lovely. And if you like the book, I'd love if you gave me a quote for it. And about three weeks later, uh, Mr. Aykroyd, I had an email from Dan Aykroyd in my inbox and, and he said, really enjoyed it. Here's your quote. And, uh, it, it, you know, it blew my mind because, again, a lot of people come to Dan Aykroyd as an actor and that's definitely like one of his main careers. But. I think that Ghostbusters is one of the best movie screenplays that has ever been written. So I've always respected him as a writer. So the fact that he semi-enjoyed, or or maybe he's a great liar, but that he semi-enjoyed uh, anything that I wrote is astounding. Uh, that is a really great story. That's that's uh, that's perfect. And the Brad Meltzer one, that one just shows Moxie, my friend. That just shows <laughs> just going for it. So I really I love, love that. Yeah. I love Identity Crisis, and I love a lot of his novels, so that's why I was like, I'm going to, here we go. Uh, but uh, some, some of the other people I was just lucky enough to meet, and I stayed in contact during my time at D.C., like, um, I, I can now say that I'm, I'm friends with Dan Jurgens, which is which is astounding. I met him through D.C., and some of the other comic book creators as well. Like, I was lucky enough that I've interviewed them in my past, um, and I reached out to them because I respect their work, and they, they graciously uh, gave me some words. Wow. Yeah, those are that's a great friend to uh, to go ahead and reference for a, a comment like that. And a great thing to know that you've got a, a friend like that that you can reach out to and get their kind of feedback, uh, because it was another example of just great praise of this work. I know that before I completely try and monopolize this whole thing, Brad, I'd love to turn it over to you for one or two questions, and then I'm happy to come back with a couple of follow-up. Um, but I love that I just got uh, two great answers to two great questions. Thank you, Jason. Those were awesome okay. stories. Okay, so I I was wondering, uh, you know, because nerd culture over, you know, over the past two decades has gone really mainstream. So I was I was curious when you were in the military, was there a lot of fandom in the military or was it something that you kind of had to, you know, just read on your own? Uh, there there wasn't a lot of fandom in in the military at all, especially because um, I was in the military from about 2000 to 2005. Um, so I was the only comic book nerd that I knew about. Um, and I and I started reading comic books openly because I. Honestly, you know, I was in a combat zone and I didn't care. So I just I was like, I'm going to read what I'm going to read. Um, fun fact, fandom sort of showed up in other ways. So the fandom, I think, was always out there. It just took modern MCU movies to bring it to the boil. Um, there were two things that I specifically remember from Iraq. One is um, when I was in Iraq or before Iraq, I can't remember around the time, the ultimate Spider-Man game video game came out. Uh, and that was the one that was cell shaded and it was like Brian Michael Bendis worked on it. Oh, and yeah. it was also yeah, connected yeah. to the comics. Mm -hmm. It was a fun game. I, I remember. And you 
every other level you flip to Venom. Um, that was a very popular game in Iraq. Um, everybody loved playing it. And I remember I had such a blast playing that game as well. Um, the other thing that uh, was a big deal is I can remember, because I can't remember, where the, I think Smallville was in its fourth season or its fifth season at that time. And there was a box set of the five seasons of Smallville that had come out or the four seasons of Smallville that had come out at that point. And everybody in my unit devoured that show. Like we, we, everybody wanted to watch it. And when you think about it, it's like a teenager show about Superman, right? And, and all these soldiers in a combat zone are like, oh man, did you see that episode of Smallville? What, what about when the, you know, like he threw the crystal, dude, did you see that? Like those conversations were actually had in a combat zone. So I think that <laughs> that's kind of that's funny. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and uh, my I guess my other question would be um, judging by your own experience in the military and just the experience of writing the book uh, which of these characters was the hardest to write and which character do you think you know in the comics had the most realistic depiction of military experience oh it's so crazy um, I mean the one that had the most I think realistic portrayal is honestly Isaiah Bradley and oh, okay. uh, for for people out there that don't know, that's the first Captain America in Marvel comic books continuity. He is a character from Truth, Red, White, and Black, where you discover that just like the Tuskegee experiments, the American government perfected the super soldier serum on an African-American before they did. They gave it to Steve Rogers. And that is the story about one of the guys that survives that trial. Um, I, I, I kind of think weirdly like uh, Isaiah Bradley, just how um, – and I'm not saying that like how all soldiers are treated that way, but like how he responds to the service and how he never gives up the call. Like there's something about his story that even I can relate to that I can. I, and I think a lot of service members out there would. Fun fact, the hardest character to write is probably Captain America. Hmm. Um, he he actually I thought he was going to be the the easiest chapter, you know, because we all know Captain America and we all kind of know what he is. But I discovered in my research that it wasn't until like the 1980s that he becomes a real person. Prior to the 1980s, he's sort of a walking recruitment poster who just says, I want you buy war bonds and, and loose lips sink ships. He he's he has no depth to himself. And it's not until you get to writers like Roger Stern or Mark Grunewald or Mark Wade and even Ed Brubaker that they start making Steve Rogers a real person. So I will say like the beginning of the Captain America chapter was was really, really tough because I was essentially writing about an ideal and not a real person, not a real man, not a real soldier. And um, so that that one that actually writing that chapter is the whole reason why I decided to interject my personal stories into it, because oh, okay. I originally wasn't going to do that. And then writing about that character made me be like, oh, man, I got to I don't know what's wrong. I got to I got to do something here. And then putting my own story in there suddenly opened up the gates and allowed me to write the rest of the book. Oh, great. That's a that's a great story, too. And Seth, do you have follow ups? 
I do have uh, maybe one or two more. I'm not sure, you know, uh, trying to monopolize your time here, but I, I love your answers. And it's really just great to add on to what we've already gotten from the content in the book. I think maybe the first one that comes to mind is uh, you, if you wouldn't mind just talking about your decision to compare each character against the military code that they were trained to follow or that they uh, could be modeled their act, model their actions against. And um, not everyone lives up to those values. Mm-hmm. And that makes for some really interesting contradictions and judgments about their moral compasses. How was that process while writing about each character? Because in many ways, some of the aspects of the code can seem extremely difficult, depending on the situation that they're placed in. Yeah, um, I, I totally understand that. And, the, and yeah, some of those soldiers, some of those examples, yeah, they're... Yeah, they're not good examples. They're then they fail to live up to it. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that I needed a way or a baseline to sort of like judge all of these service members off of. And I brought up the idea of each section of the military, I talk about this in the book, has their own code, has their own ideals that they strive for. And uh, I think a lot of civilians don't know about that. And those ideals are beat into trainees in basic training. Like you, uh, I remember in the army and army basic training, like the army core values were just slammed into us over and over and over and over. And so I thought since every military person gets these core ideals from their section drilled into their brains, I thought that was a very interesting way to look at, where did they deviate from them? Because that you're, you're, they are supposed to be a foundation for us and a foundation for our decisions and the way we act and how we engage on missions. Um, and a lot of them are very pure. A lot of them sound kind of like Superman. Like they would be impossible to always live up to. So it is interesting, I think, to, to use the juxtaposition between these comic book characters and these perfect ideals, especially since we put comic book characters on such high pedestals and if they don't act to these ideals it's interesting to note that and it's interesting to to look at that but but a lot of it again came from i i don't know if a lot of civilians know about these core ideals yes and through those it seems that in many ways some of the characters that we've come to love and admire don't measure up and often fail as you mentioned to uh reach those codes or to follow them in their actions or or even many ways uh in the way they sort of react to them or respond to them as they're they're put into a a difficult situation or another challenge um and given that i was just kind of curious about uh the fact that nuke is a really challenging personification of patriotism he's like this example of of someone who takes the code to a zealotry and then the patriotism also to a zealotry you mentioned he was really difficult to write as well and i was curious was he always the perfect choice for this kind of analysis or was there another character you were considering using or perhaps why you chose him in the end no actually it's funny nuke was always in the book I, I i knew i had to talk about nuke even though i wasn't looking forward to writing it because he is the example of the post-Vietnam soldier that I think a lot of people in the 80s thought how all soldiers acted. I, I even think, to even to this day, I think you might find some older people 
you know, people in their 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 late fifties or higher that might judge soldiers exactly as nuke because that was sort of the stereotype that was put out there during the eighties. And Frank Miller leaned into that stereotype so hard that again, nuke is like the opposite to Captain America. He's the opposite end of that spectrum that he's so hard into this um, America first and I'm only going to drink American beer and, and speak American <laughs> that he becomes a, a cliche. And, and, and again, the reason why he was difficult was because he's the furthest thing from a good soldier that I hope I ever see in my life. And I hope I never beat a soldier that is like nuke that it just became very, it, 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 it was, I, I got angry writing that chapter. <laughs> I don't know if you could re- tell re- reading the text, but like I got angry writing about Nuke because I'm just like, oh, God, don't be like this, dude. I really noticed that. I thought your voice was really demonstrative of how you were feeling, especially when you were talking about the way he hides behind things that he wants to be fighting for. When in mm-hmm. reality, that's not what he's fighting for. He's just using those things as like a shield or a mask or something else. And if I have time for one or two more, this one I know I want to squeeze in simply because uh, the gentleman who brought it to my attention deserves recognition, Mr. Steve J. Ray. He he had a conversation, I believe it was with Frank Miller, and he can correct me later. Um, but from my understanding, during that conversation, he learned about the upcoming Frank Miller Superman story. And I, we had a chance to get a, an advanced look at the book and it confirmed what he had mentioned, which was that in this book, Superman actually ends up joining the Navy. And according to a trailer we'll be talking about later on this episode, he becomes a Navy SEAL. And it's interesting that when you first are reading the book, you mentioned Superman as someone who wouldn't have done those things. And yet now in this story that Frank Miller's presented, Superman is a soldier. And it might even tie into why in the uh, version of Dark Knight Returns, he has such an allegiance to serving the country and going, you know, essentially to battle against Batman. But I was curious if you were aware of this, how you feel in any way this uh, changes your perception of him or if if you had any thoughts about him in relationship to your book, just given how in many ways Superman's ideals were always above and beyond country line borders or country borders. And yet. Now, in this story, he's made an allegiance to a government at a young age, according to Frank Miller's version of his character. Well, I I have heard of that. I, I had heard the rumors that Superman was going to join the Navy in that story. Now, I have not read that issue. Um, and I also will say that I don't think that you absolutely cannot do a story with Superman in the military. I do think that there are prob- there is some interesting angles. There is some interesting scenes that you could come up with that. But... Superman is, again, he's one of these characters that, and you said it, that he's above borders. He's from another world. And it does feel weird that he joins, or, you know, he would have to give allegiance to the United States above everyone else in the world, everyone else in the universe. And to me, that comes off as very anti-Superman. Because mm, Superman is agree. for everybody, right? He 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 kind of is that character that is about those ideals of true. I mean, truth, justice in the American way. And now a lot of people are are, are you know um, jiving against that. But I always look at that the American way means you know what we said in in the Constitution and the, and the Declaration. You know, freedom for all. 
equality for all, liberty for all. That's that's what I think they're going for, especially with some a character like Superman, where they say the American way. But for Superman to join the Navy SEALs, that seems very interesting. That is a person, that is a sailor that is so committed to the cause of the Navy that he has decided to double down. That's exactly what, that's kind of what you do when you join the special forces of any of these military sections. And that, yeah, that doesn't seem like something Superman or the classic version of Superman would do. Um, I don't know. I'm very curious to read it, though. Uh, I really appreciate your feedback because as soon as I read your book and then, you know, came across this issue and started making the comparisons, I thought to myself, well, this changes everything about Superman. This changes everything I, I think I know or would understand. And I had viewed him from a similar lens as you present in the beginning of the book as someone being from another planet and arriving here with his powers. He fights for the entire world. He identifies with the values he was raised in, which were the American values, the American way. But that's not the flag he fights for. And so I, I, I'm going to be interested as well to read the rest of this story just to see how it comes out. Do I have time for more questions, guys? I'm not trying to, to you know, just completely take over Jason's time here. And I know if Brad or, or anyone else wants to add, I, I've got a few more here, but I also want to make sure I'm sharing the mic. Yeah, I had one. Um, you know, you, you talk about a lot of characters in your book and, and some very lesser known characters. One of my favorites uh, from your book was uh, Gravedigger, a character that I, I didn't know anything about, but I loved reading that chapter of it. Was it always the plan to in, include these lesser known characters uh, that, that most people probably had never heard of before? Oh, 100%. Um, I mean, probably, again, the reason why I talk about it in the in introductory chapter about why it was so hard to make this list was because I wanted to do some research and I, I myself wanted to discover some characters that I had never heard of. I actually had never heard of Gravedigger myself. I knew Sergeant Rock. And I've read a majority of Sergeant Rock comics, and I guess I must have missed the Gravedigger ones, or I had forgotten about the Gravedigger ones, because, you know, they team up several times. And so when I discovered Gravedigger again, I was like, oh, man, like, I've definitely got to talk about this guy um, in the book. So, no, it was always the idea to, like, try to throw in some characters in there that maybe some people didn't know about. Because uh, it's funny, us as comic book fans, I feel like we all know about Nuke, but... I don't think my mother knows who Nuke is. Um, so, like, that was, in my opinion, like, that's another obscure character. And and I'm sad to say, I also think Sergeant Rock, to the general consciousness, I think is not as well known as I would like him to be. So, um, no, I definitely, like, I wanted the audience to be as surprised as I was when I discovered some of these characters as well. Excellent. Yeah, and you definitely did. Like I said, I'd never heard of Gravedigger, and it, was, it became one of my favorite chapters in, in the entire book. Yeah, I absolutely loved his story as well. Uh, Jason, thank you for bringing him to my attention. You know, I always thought Sergeant Rock was sort of one of those earliest versions, you know, between him and Nick, you know, Fury. Those were sort of my earliest references to the wartime comics. But learning about Gravedigger was a really great experience, as as well as, uh, you know, the first Captain America. That was another one where the history was just something that I thought to myself, this is something I would love to read more of, and I'm glad that I know enough about it now to find it and, and read it for myself. Awesome, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I they really need to bring uh, Truth, Red, White, and Black back into print because um, that's just a, it's just a really, really great miniseries. It, it is, and I, I remember when that came out, it made a lot of headlines 
And that came out at a time when comics didn't really do that kind of, you know, in the way that they do now. Uh, you know, that that was covered a lot in the mainstream media. And back in the days of Wizard Magazine, it seemed like they had a different feature on that, like every month around that time. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. They should absolutely bring that back. Yeah, 100 percent. I, I mean, I think that's the only reason uh, I even knew about truth and isaiah bradley was because of wizard magazine so um it's just one of those things where like man i it's every time i go on these podcasts or talk to a bunch of people man we all miss wizard magazine like we all (laughs) nothing nothing in the modern world has replaced it that is the truth yeah so i think we have time for uh, a couple more questions if you guys have anything else you'd like to ask i i would just was just wondering your you know, you, your childhood experience that drove you to comics, and do you think, you know, being drawn to the comics was had any influence in you wanting to join the military? Um, you know, I'd probably be lying if I said no. I mean, honestly, consciously, the answer the answer is no. But I kind of think unconsciously, I've always said this for years that all the science fiction books and comic books that I read as a kid. Because again, I come from middle of nowhere, Kansas. The the I, I didn't even grow up in a town. I grew up out in the middle of the country. The closest town nearby had 73 people in it. Um, so I call it Smallville because when I say the name of Stark, Kansas, nobody knows where it is. So I was really like cut off from the world, and there was no internet, and there wasn't anything. So I used comic books and like books and novels and science fiction novels to like expand my horizons and like you know try to view the world outside of where I was. And so I'm certain that those probably did influence me with the idea of, you know, stepping up to the line, doing something that most people don't do. Like it is a small percentage of our population that actually volunteers for the military. And I think that's the reason why uh, I signed up. It's so interesting, too, because when I look back at it um, or when people find out that I was in the military, they're always quite surprised. Like they're very surprised that I was in the military and it's interesting because looking back at it now, I I, pr- I don't know if I would join now. I, I don't know if I would. But uh, it's you know one of those weird instances where I guess I was at the right age, the right time, and had enough of that Superman gung ho ness to to make me step up there. Thank you, right. Seth. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else you want to ask? Uh, yeah, uh, these fall a little bit more on the lighthearted side of sure of the, uh, the stories. Uh, one, do you still paint? Do I still paint? Yes, it doesn't have to be murals. Uh, I I haven't painted in like a couple years, but I do have an iPad Pro, and uh, I I doodle on. I have an Apple Pencil, and I doodle in Procreate. So uh, I have All some right. of those up. On, I have some of those up on my Instagram. But uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, I haven't painted for a long time. I mean, fun fact, guys. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a comic book artist, and then I remember I looked at an issue of Wolverine. That was drawn by Adam Kubert, and I had every intention to going to the Joe Kubert School of Design, you know, and going becoming a comic book artist. I looked at my art compared to Adam Kubert. Now, the, the stupid thing to do when you're sick, <laughs> but I looked at it and I was like, oh, I'm not even close. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what made me decide not to do that. But uh, no, I still I I call it doodling. I still doodle. Okay, well, I really loved your story about the murals, um, and for anyone who gets a chance to read the book. Uh, This man has a great sense of perseverance and a sense of responsibility. 
And I'm not sure if I would have been able to accomplish what you did when it came to doing those murals, but I really enjoyed that story. And it just made me wonder, I wonder what that could have led to that, that, that sense of, you know, determination. I love that there's a, a free story that's about, you know, you wanting to become a comic book artist. And I hope it's something you continue to pursue because uh, clearly you have an affinity and you have a, a skill. Otherwise you wouldn't have been asked to do it by a commanding officer. And clearly as well as you did if he wanted you to do it better the second time around um (laughs) (laughs) a uh another fun thing for me is you step outside of the uh the big two a bit when you move things over into beetle bailey and the great story about uh, a certain officer who sucks and uh also um i was just curious you know this idea of hijinks and how it helps soldiers alleviate stress how you know you can kind of get this cabin fever feeling did that inspiration come from Beetle Bailey? Did that come from someone you knew and you included him? How did Beetle Bailey, you know, go from being a comic book character who's not really someone people think of as the military or a good representation, and yet also maybe have some real life identifiers that you mentioned in the book or outside of the book? You know, it's interesting. Uh, originally, I was not going to include Beetle Bailey into this book. And then a friend of mine, uh, Nathan Alexander, suggested when I when he learned I was writing this book, he's like, "You got to put Beetle, Beetle Bailey in it." And as soon as he said it, it like light bulb went off in my head. I was like, "Yeah, I do have to include Beetle Bailey because he's probably <laughs> one of the most famous soldiers in pop culture." Honestly, like people probably know Beetle Bailey. I would say almost as e- before maybe Avenger the Avengers movies. Captain America and Beetle Bailey were probably neck and neck about the most famous soldier. Um, you know, I would still, agree. He's still being published even now. Um, like they haven't stopped publishing Beetle Bailey. Um, so like once I started writing that chapter, it, it weirdly became that uh, you asked me earlier who was the most accurate representation of a soldier. I I've been saying lately that I think Beetle Bailey is like probably the second most accurate because we all. We all feel like everybody in the service feels like Beetle Bailey at one point or another where the Sarge orders us to do something. And we absolutely don't want to do it. We just want to take a nap by a tree and <laughs> we don't want to do the missions. We don't want to do anything. Um, so in a weird way, uh, Beetle Bailey is is the true spirit animal of the military. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, Mort Walker, the guy who created Beetle Bailey was in the army and you can go find this online uh, he has a lot of interviews where he talked about that beetle bailey is based on his real experiences of joining the military around the korean war and it's um i i forget the name but uh, the beetle bailey's base is based on a real united states military base <laughs> um, great detail so you know my my dad was a world war ii vet and it was always a tradition kind of on Sunday to read the funnies together. And Beetle Bailey was always one of his favorites. And I, I, I think the reason that that was is like you were saying, like it's kind of an accurate depiction in a way. So I, I'm, from that standpoint, I'm glad you included him, uh, Beetle Bailey in the book. I was kind of surprised to see that, but I was like, oh, that's so cool. That, you know, and it's, it, it's interesting that, that he still has that kind of exposure, you know, that, People today, I don't know how much they read the Sunday funnies, so it's it's kind of good that he's still getting out there and still is so well known. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 um, 
I guess it just goes to show you that as much as like sometimes comic book fans want to discount them, comic strips in newspapers are still the the most read comics anywhere, and and they're still being published even today. So like we can't ever discount them. Right. Agreed. Um, and just to add on to the the thing, um, I just have to laugh at the fact that Brad, you know, um. There was a humor side that I never knew existed with the military. My father served in Vietnam, and I used to look at these Beetle Bailey and say, you couldn't really get away with this, right, Dad? Um, and I'm just going to out him here because he told me this story, and I'm okay telling this story too because it's it's a silly one. But he was uh, he was stationed in Vietnam, and apparently the weather was so bad and humid that you would take showers at night because it was cool and refreshing. Mm-hmm. And on at least four different occasions, he would go to the shower and take what's called a military shower, which is you rinse off, then soap up and then rinse off again. And in between, you've turned off the water. And on four separate occasions when he did this, the uh, the air raid happened while he had soaped up. So there Uh he is with like four other guys sprinting back to the barracks because it's an air raid and nobody cares that you haven't rinsed off yet. And, you know, the joke would be afterwards, every time they saw him going to the showers, it was like, well, here comes Singleton. Better grab your air raid gear because, you know, you know, it's coming. (laughs) And I until that, I never thought of anything funny happening in a military or war situation. And now suddenly Beetle Bailey seems like like a perfect example. (laughs) We always had... um... We had a, there were sometimes there were trailers in Iraq when I was stationed there um, that had limited water supply, depending on like what base you were on. And if you're there, they would have to they would require you to take like combat showers and combat showers is basically like a shower that's like less than three minutes and the water will turn on and then it would just shut off on you. <laughs> so if you didn't like say like you got in the shower and you're like oh it feels really good man and you forget about it like you could be in the middle of something <laughs> up and the water just turns off uh and you're screwed <laughs> like, <just> dry off <laughs> oh that sucks I, I was not aware of that I, I thought it was just like this thing they had to follow i didn't know it just shuts off on you that's <laughs> some some bases some bases didn't have those but uh, other bases would and you, you just would never know Oh, man, that's a great story. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are some great questions, some great answers. Uh, The book Super Soldiers, a salute to the comic book heroes and villains who fought for their country, I believe comes out this Tuesday, correct? That is correct. June 18th. All right. Uh, Amazon, is there anywhere else uh, people can grab your book? Uh, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Apple Books. I saw Target has it. Also, your local comic book store can order it as well if you ask them to order it through Ingram Publishing. Now, it's a distributor that's not Diamond, but uh, comic book shops can order it as well if you, if, that, if you just rather support your comic book shop. Yeah, fantastic. So make sure you go and pick up your copy of Super Soldiers when it comes out this week. Uh, so we're going to move on to our news. We're going to start off with some movie news. And Jason has uh, graciously agreed to uh, stick around for uh, for a few news stories to talk with us. Oh, thanks for so, letting me stay around. Absolutely. Uh, our first story is uh, the Batman Hush Blu-ray will be hitting uh, shelves a week early. Warner Brothers announced on Friday that it uh, is moving the Blu-ray and 4K release dates for Batman Hush up by a week to August 6th. Uh, the digital release date remains July 20th. August 6th is also the day it will arrive on the DC Universe streaming service. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on uh, this early release and your thoughts on uh, Batman Hush getting the animated a- uh, adaptation in general. Uh, Jason, we're going to start off with you. 
Look, Batman Hush, I've been saying for a long time, is the one DC Comics storyline that they they should have adapted. I'm so happy they've done it um, because Batman Hush is such an easy entryway point into Batman because it's a, it's a self-contained story. Every Batman villain is in it. Um, you know, I, I, it's about time they made this into an animated film. So uh, if they're going to make this earlier, great. Um, I think this one's going to premiere comic-con i think i believe not 100 percent certain about that but this is i mean the dc most of the dc animated movies are awesome so i'm actually pleased that uh that we're just going to get this sooner yeah it makes sense that it, if it's going to be at comic-cons with the, the the digital release date being july 20th uh, i'd be right around that time frame so it would definitely make sense and for me hush is one of my favorite batman stories so i'm thrilled that they're finally uh, adapting this one and yeah like you said getting it a week early you can't go wrong with that. Uh, so, Seth, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think if you know that people are waiting for it and you can time it right for a great event like the Comic-Con, why not? I also uh, wanted to just say that uh, there hasn't been an animated film that's come out that DC has done that I haven't enjoyed, loved, or rewatched multiple times. What I love about this one is it's a bit timely for us as well because of this great animated short with Sergeant Rock that I'm really looking forward to enjoying and just getting to see him on the screen again. And um, also the fact that, you know, Hush is, as has been said, and I'm happy to echo, one of those great stories that just gives you this, well, this almost deep dive into Batman that just kind of keeps diving deeper and deeper. And that's something that deserves to be seen in a way that we can experience on screen. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Hush has been one of the most iconic Batman stories. Has really lasting power. I mean, you know, probably it's right up there with one of the best. And I think it's also one of the stories that so many people have wanted to see get adapted. And the DC animated movies have such a good reputation. You know, you know, it seems like they're almost guaranteed quality. So I think people are really chomping at the bit to be able to uh, experience this. So the fact that it's early, it's a great thing. And I'm, I'm also really looking forward to the Sergeant Rock uh, animated as well. So the earlier, the better. Absolutely. And speaking of Batman, we also had some uh, a bunch of rumor news drop uh, this week. Several new villains are rumored to be joining the cast of The Batman. Uh, there have been rumors uh, of multiple villains for some time now, but it seems that we may now have an idea of who those villains might be. Uh, it was already confirmed that Catwoman and Penguin would be in the Matt Reeves uh, upcoming film, but reports have now surfaced this past week that Riddler, Firefly, Mad Hatter, and Two-Face may also be joining the rogues gallery. Just want to get your guys' thoughts on uh, this plethora of villains who may be uh, popping into Batman's world. Uh, Seth, we're going to start off with you. What do you think about this? Well, I immediately think that Firefly and Mad Hatter are just going to be really great visual spectacles to see on screen. Just getting a chance to see them personified is going to be really wonderful. And I'm also really looking forward to a, a great Riddler. I remember being on a conversation with uh, Steve and Kelly on here, and I, I think it might have just been the three of us, but we were talking about who uh, the villain we would most like to see in this movie, and mine was the Riddler. I want to see the Riddler from the War of Riddle and Jokes. I want to see, you know, the one who's so smart that, you know, he's that dangerous. And he's, I really want to just 
see that great Riddler. So I'm really excited about this idea. Uh, really excited about the idea of seeing the Mad Hatter and uh, Firefly. I love the visual. And I think bringing back, you know, Penguin and Catwoman just seems like such a smart move. And Brad, what about you? Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they all fit into the broader story in general, because you get some superhero movies, when you have too many villains, especially in Batman movies, it can seem a little cluttered and they don't all get their fair shake. So I want to see as many as I can, but it, I'm really curious on exactly how big of a part these each one of these characters is going to play. If you have Firefly, it would be silly not to have Firefly in some capacity where, you know, obviously you see him use his powers and uh, that would, would almost necessitate some kind of big tentpole action scene in the movie. So, so we'll see, but yeah, I mean, I, I always think that Batman stories are only as good as the villains. And that's one of my favorite things about them. So, uh, that and I always kind of wanted to see a, a Mad Hatter come to the big screen, so I think his time is due. Yeah, I, I'm pretty excited for it. Uh, the only thing that worries me is, you know, is it too many villains? You know, it could be a little bit too much. But I have faith in Matt Reeves. Uh, Jason, what about you? What do you think about all these villains possibly joining uh, the Batman? Well, you know, one we have to, you know, these are all rumors, so we have to take that as a grain of salt. Um, because, you know, where's this Jared Leto Joker movie that was supposed to be happening? Um, Very true. <laughs> and, you know, I've heard rumors out there as well that this movie is going to do a version of Long Halloween. So oh, okay. if that's the case, then all of these villains could literally just be bit parts yeah. and little, you know, just one off scenes. And if that's the case, then I think it could work very well. Um if they are all main villains, then again, yeah, it, the Batman movies got problematic when they started having more than one Batman villain um, because they were all fighting for screen time with Batman. So if, if it's a long Halloween situation, then I, I'm I'm pretty excited. I think it'll be really cool. And I think Matt Reeves can pull it off. Yeah, I think that would definitely be a great way to do that. And speaking of building bigger universes. Uh, our last story in the movie news is James Gunn rumored to helm DC's rebuilding of their cinematic universe. Uh, last week, a r rumor surfaced that DC was preparing to reboot the DCEU, but it seems that those reports may have been a bit premature as a new report claims that James Gunn is now being assigned the task of repairing the current film universe instead of rebooting it. So my questions for all of you are, do you like the idea of repairing DC Cinematic Universe instead of rebooting it? And do you like the idea of James Gunn leading the charge? Yes, I'm excited about it because uh, one of the, the biggest criticisms that the DCU had was the fact that it the tone was a little too dark. It was too gloomy. And James Gunn is very bright uh, and he, he uses humor very well. So I think I, I would like to see what he would bring to it uh, i think he could bring a little bit of lightness into it but still good quality stories and jason uh, what are your thoughts on this no <laughs> no um that's my thoughts on this um i think james gunn's a talented filmmaker i think he's a great choice for guardians of the galaxy 
Um, I still think it is too early to call whether he's going to be able to make the Suicide Squad work or whether that movie is going to even work. I do not want a cinematic universe with the flavor of James Gunn. Um, primarily because I, I do respect your points that like he definitely would lighten it up, but no movie in James Gunn career convinces me that he could give me a take on Superman that I would like that I would not think is just ridiculous. Um, again, this is a filmmaker who made Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. That is in his resume. Um, and people forget that just because of Guardians Galaxy 1. Um, you know, um, I, you know, to be honest with you, I would love to see uh, uh, James Gunn doing more uh, movies at DC. I would be totally down for that because, again, I think he's a very talented filmmaker. But his style only works for certain characters. Um, his style only works for the misfits and the outcasts and the weirdos. It does not work for the main cast members. I would say the same thing about I, I never want to see a James Gunn Avengers movie. Um, but you give me a James Gunn Booster Gold movie? Yeah, I'd go see that. You give me a James Gunn uh, Blue Beetle movie? I'd go see that. Um, I'd even consider... Um, giving me a James Gunn uh, uh, Teen Titans movie because they're sort of different and weird. But James Gunn Justice League, James Gunn Superman, uh, I don't know about this. Uh, I, I, I think that's a complete overreaction. I think it's, again, Warner Brothers making the idea of, like, we're too dark and grim, so like let's go completely comedic. Yeah, I, I definitely, I think I just the way you've been kind of talking about it, you're kind of swaying me on that because... Yeah, James Gunn does have a very specific style to him from, uh, you know, whether it's things like Super or Slither or things like that. You know, it's it, it's it's very niche. And yeah, I don't I don't know if he, if his take on Superman would quite do it for me as well. Um, what about you, Seth? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, um, no offense, Jason, you just kind of stole a lot of what I was going to say. Oh, uh, I love you. No, no, and, no. And, and again, if, <laughs> if, 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 out there, out there, if you guys think that James Gunn would do a fantastic job, um, awesome. You know, like, again, nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. Uh, go ahead, sir. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but to echo you and to, to further it along, what has he done with DC characters to give me a reason to believe or any sort of basis to say, yes, this is someone who should be in charge of fixing it i haven't even seen his first dc movie has he done a dc movie before this am i out of the loop is there something i need to no. uh so, no so if he hasn't then what i'm left with is show me what you got first then after i see how well you do it because otherwise why aren't we asking matt reeves to do the same thing why isn't matt reeves being asked to do it we haven't seen his batman but we also haven't seen James Gunn's Suicide Squad, and it seems really presumptuous to decide, hey, you know what? We just like the way this guy talks. We haven't even seen anything he's completed, but we like what he did somewhere else. Well, he left somewhere else for a reason, and it seems a little early to put a lot of hope on the newest arrival. I mean, it, it's it's really soon, so I'm just going to go back to, yeah, it's too early. It's just too early for all the different reasons I listed and Jason uh, said even better than me earlier. Yeah, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna die on that hill. <laughs> I, I guess, I, I, I guess my point is, I wouldn't expect him to necessarily 
put his complete stamp on Justice League, give it some direction, maybe not direct the movie, maybe help find people that would. But I mean, I, I do think you guys brought up some good points. So, yeah, it's fair enough. Yeah, I think, you know, James Gunn, he's he's better off when, when you give him a character, you give him a story, you give him a movie and you let him go off in the corner and make it. I don't think he's the, I don't think he's a Kevin Feige. I don't think he's a guy that can delegate and, and, and see an overall big picture. I, I think he's great when he can just go off in the corner and make his own thing, and then six months later, he gives us an awesome movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, that wraps up everything for the movie news. Uh, before we head into TV and streaming, we are going to take a little bit of a break for some ads from our sponsors. Uh Jason, thank you so much for joining us for the, this portion of the podcast. I was thrilled to have you on. If you could just let everybody know where they can uh, find you on, on the interwebs. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, guys, to nerd out with you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I love the website. I love your guys' podcast. So thank you so much. Um, you can find me online everywhere at Jawin, J-A-W-I-I-N. It's my Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. And if you like some of my thoughts uh, about nerdy stuff, I do a weekly podcast called Geek History Lesson. It's on iTunes and everywhere you listen to podcasts where we explain comic book and pop culture characters in a little bit less than an hour. And then also, don't forget, Super Soldiers. My book hits June 18th. Yes, and it's a fantastic podcast. Make sure you guys check it out. And also, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, your comic book, Jupiter Jet, which uh, I thought was fantastic. And so you guys out there, definitely uh, check out Jupiter Jet. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, we'll be right back. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the DC Comics News Podcast. Just want to say another huge thank you to Jason Inman for joining us. Uh, and taking his place is another man who is wonderful, who is knowledgeable who just there's just not enough words in in the dictionary to describe this man steve j ray is here yet again welcome steve (laughs) greetings my brothers (laughs) and uh i know since you weren't in for the uh first portion uh, of the podcast i wanted to give you a few minutes to kind of give your thoughts on the topics that we just discussed well we've talked about this the last few weeks and everyone knows that um well, I don't know if everyone knows that I like Batman and stuff. Like Batman Wait, stuff. really? You like Batman? I, would <laughs> I know, right? You think I should get a job being uh, editor-in-chief on a Batman-related website or something? The, something. the, the amount I, I like There's Batman. There's subtle hints if you pay attention. <laughs> I should look into that, definitely. But uh, Batman Hush coming early? Yes. Um, all these characters, it's the same as you guys said earlier, actually. The fact that all the rumors are pointing to this being an adaptation of the long Halloween and dark victory that makes having those characters work. And it also fits kind of like with the gauntlet thing that you were talking about, Seth, in the, 
weeks gone by. So, yeah, really, really happy about all of that. So, mm, more Batman stuff coming and a Joker movie. Yes, I'm one happy little pointy-eared friend. All right. <laughs> so now we're going to move into our TV and streaming news. First up, James Wan addresses the Swamp Thing cancellation. Uh, taking to his Instagram account over the weekend, James Wan spoke out about the situation, saying, and I quote, don't really know or understand why Swamp Thing was canceled, but I can tell you this. All the cast and crew and producing slash writing team poured their hearts into this. Really proud of everyone's hard work. Go watch episode two and immortalize these 10 episodes. Swampy deserves it. So I just want to get your guys' thoughts on, on, on you know, why James Wan, you know, obviously he didn't know or understand why this is getting canceled. Obviously, this came from the higher ups. And I just want to get your thoughts on his comments. So we're going to start with Steve. Well, I was heartbroken um, being a Swamp Thing fan for my entire life. That um, and, and the timing of it as well, like you said in the show last week, guys, one episode airs and then boom, you announce the cancellation. What the actual hell? But I'm just literally going to look past that. The first three episodes are brilliant. Yeah, I'm just going to enjoy whatever they've given us and, and join in for the ride because – I'm not going to give up hope if Netflix can save Lucifer, if uh, Gotham can get its final season, if Arrow can get another 10 episodes, then I think fan response. The critics have really loved it. I'm hoping that something can find its way back. I really am. Yeah, hopefully. I know that there were some some rumors of some uh, kind of behind the scenes turmoil, some uh, differences in, in creative thought between some of the, the, the higher ups. So, I'm curious if, if that's the actual reason and they're just kind of keeping it close to the vest. Uh, Seth, what about you? What do you think about all this? It's really hard for me to feel like I can speak with a great deal of authority when it comes to this at times. I, I was one of those who reacted really poorly to the announcement of, a, of the cancellation. Um, I wasn't pleased by it. I was frustrated and in agreement with others uh, who I was listening to on the podcast I, I was really frustrated by the timing and how it just seemed to be something that's just guaranteed to uh, diminish what could have been really great, you know, viewership as the season progressed and as the, the interest continues to grow in what I think is a really groundbreaking opportunity for DC. And I'm frustrated also by the fact that, you know, there's an attempt now to say no one really knows what's going on. You know, I, I respect the fact that if uh, Mr. Juan was kept out of the loop, that's got to be confusing. But to claim that the story about the North Carolina tax credit has been debunked by the North Carolina film office by deadline doesn't feel like it's concrete. It just feels like shifting the story blame or, or turning our attention somewhere else. And it feels as though at some point we're going to find out what the real story is or was. But there's a great deal of just confusion and frustration. And I feel like it's a it feels like an effort to me to keep money in the waters until this is over and someone feels comfortable enough or safe enough to speak honestly about what's going on. That's that's really my take at the moment. Um, it's not the happiest, but I'm loving the show. So this sort of information just continues to make me think, why are you distracting from a great show when there could be so much more great talk about what I think is a, a really powerful show? Um, that's where I'm at right now. It's not the happiest, but. It's as honest as I think I can, you know, take on, on some. Yeah. And, uh, Brad, what about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, 
I was bummed, uh, you know, about the canceling, and I'm bummed about this article. Uh, the the tax thing seemed like such a reason that made sense. Like they thought they were going to get this money, and the show was over budget. It seemed to be a sad but valid reason. Now, if that is going to be debunked, then you're just left with speculation. And why? Why would they let this happen? The the crew, the people behind the show seem to love it. So it's obviously something that, you know, like you're saying, is going to come out over the course of time, exactly what what has happened. And, yeah, I want them to shop it around somehow. Uh, the way that Deadly Class and Happy are being shopped around, they were canceled at Sci-Fi, but they might be revived. They're trying to sell it to other, you know, other avenues. So hopefully, hopefully we haven't uh, seen the last Swamp Thing. Yeah, hopefully. It's, I, I, I've been loving the show, and it, I was real bummed. I've been so pumped ever since they first announced that they were going to be doing a Swamp Thing series, and I've been so excited for it. And with the success. You know, I, I love Titans, and Doom Patrol has become, like, one of my favorite DC shows uh, out there. And so they just had this upward trajectory. And then with when Swamp Thing came out, I loved that first episode. But hearing it, that it got canceled, man, it just it really, I think they really just shot themselves in the foot announcing that. Because, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are just not going to bother with it, to be honest with you. Agreed, and hey, it's frustrating. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Steve. Hey, it really hurt. It was like they could not have timed it worse. Yeah. Literally, let the series get six, seven episodes in, then say, listen, because of whatever reasons, we can't carry it on. But for the first episode to air, then boom, it really left me feeling deflated. It, it was just like, why? You know, that's like Josh said, um, that might have people feeling. Should I bother watching this? Yeah, I've already and the answer is yes, people, watch it. I've seen several people online just be like, oh, don't even bother with it. It's, you know, it's already gotten canceled. You might as well not even watch it. And I'm like, oh, that like that like hurts me right in the heart, you know, to hear stuff like that. Especially when it's so good. And also, yeah. not only that, but there was such an opportunity. There was already such a great momentum between the trailer, that great little Twitter snippet that they had with Abby Arcane, which I thought was one of their smartest promotional moments. And then if they could have just kept riding that trajectory into the fifth or sixth episode, like you were saying, and then maybe start giving a little bit of leak, like budget was really high. It's going to be difficult to bring this series back, but we're looking forward to fan support and the numbers that say it. So, you know, I really think they could have navigated this in a better way than saying we're freaking out and throwing down the chopping block and this thing's getting axed. And if they really would have considered, you know, what fans are capable of based on Firefly or other projects that we've seen that have had a resurgence done correctly. I I'm really sort of, you know, thinking to myself, why pass on an opportunity? Why just shut it all down? Brad sounds like maybe you agree. Yes, absolutely. That was such a, such a bad move, such a bad move because there was such a buzz about it. I mean, I, I, I think the few weeks leading up to it, we had at least a story or a trailer that we could talk about and all of us on the podcast loved it. You know, and on, you know, on the Slack groups, people seemed to love it too within the DC comics news. So there was just, I had such high hopes that this was going to, uh, you know, really spark interest and get a lot of people watching. 
Yeah, and it, and it makes me worried for the upcoming Stargirl series because, you know, if people are, aren't continuously watching, if they're falling off, they're hearing about these issues with things with the DC Universe, it's like, are they going to stick around for the next show? Exactly. And how can this affect, uh, you know, t- the second season of Titans or other programming that mm-hmm. so far is seeing steady numbers? You know, Doom Patrol and others that we don't want to see, you know, adversely affected as well because now the confidence in this new opportunity is is clearly shaken very early on. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, and staying in the world of DC Universe, uh, we got a, our first trailer for the second half of Young Justice Outsiders, which returns on July 2nd. I just want to get your guys' thoughts on this new trailer and uh, how uh, whether or not you're excited for the remainder of uh, Young Justice Season 3. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Seth. Love the trailer. Uh, got you covered. I mean, that's going to be my new favorite phrase to think about up until we see the the first new episode on July 2nd. Um, I love the, uh, you know, just the reminder of all these great new characters that we've had a chance to experience up until now and seeing where their stories go, you know, continuing forward and just how much depth. I mean, there there are numerous thread lines going through this fabric of this uh this season and this trailer just sort of reintroduced all of my favorite moments and also reminded me that there's so much that wasn't shown that i'm also looking forward to and uh this was a great way to just gear me up for it now do you like that they split it into two the two parts of the season i can see where they need to sort of also be responsible with their viewership um there's a lot going on around the time that they had the break, uh, especially for maybe some of the audience numbers they're looking for. And if you're in junior high, high school, or even college, uh, spring break and the earliest parts of summer, your busiest times, whether it's spring events, graduation, things like that. I kind of feel that this was a strategic and a tactical move. So while I would have rather just seen it continue on all the way through, I can respect the fact that if they see a pattern that says better number viewing, if we break it up this way, or that they can do other things to work with the content that they already had to build towards a second half surge. Uh, those all seem like responsible ways of trying to manage their viewership. And um, uh, not to just keep, you know, basically kicking a tired horse, but, you know, a much smarter approach to, you know, concerning your managing your viewership than what we just saw with Swamp Thing. I'm done. I'm not yelling on Swamp Thing anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can see where the logistics make sense in this. As a fan, I'm just like, ah, screw logistics. You know, skip all your strategy. I don't care. Just give me what I want. But I can see how this benefits them. And if it works, I'm going to be pleased with it. If it doesn't, then I'm going to say, hey, you know what, guys? You guys don't know strategy. Just give us what we want. We'll tell you what's good. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Brad? Yeah, I, I as far as the uh, breaking into two parts, I agree 100% uh, with Seth. And I, as much as I dug the trailer i love seeing all the different characters one thing that that jumped out to me is the description of the season uh the team faces its greatest challenge yet as it takes on a meta-human trafficking uh and the terrifying threat it creates for a society caught in the crossfire of a genetic arms race spanning the globe and the galaxy that sounds like a amazing story and lots of possibility with what they could do with that so i think that that story is going to be very cool to see play out definitely i mean and they set a lot of that up in that first half of the season with the trafficking and everything yeah like that. 
So we're definitely going to see some interesting, interesting stuff in this uh, second half. Uh, what about you, Steve? What were your thoughts on this trailer and uh, them splitting oh, it up? Into absolutely. Um, like, did you not all feel as well that this season of Young Justice has really grown up? I mean, that whole subject of the kids going missing and giving them superpowers and the human trafficking. And I, I think splitting up into two is actually a bit of a genius move. Like the end of any comic book that ends in a cliffhanger, that's going to leave you salivating for the next issue. So brilliant, really clever. They, they've written it in a more adult way, but it's still a cartoon that you can sit down and watch with your nieces and nephews. Um, I think the DC Universe is batting 100. I mean, the whole Swamp Thing debacle set aside, I'm with Seth on this one. I could rant and rave about that forever. But the rest of it, (laughs) Titans, Doom Patrol, Swamp Thing, it's great stuff. So I can't wait for the series to come back. Really, really enjoying it. Loving it. Fantastic. Uh, Continuing on with some more DC Universe stuff, we got a couple of different casting announcements for the upcoming season of Titans. Uh, The first one, is uh, Natalie, I'm not sure how to say her last name, Gumid, perhaps, uh, has joined as Mercy Graves. There have been rumors that Titan Season 2 would be adding Lex Luthor to the mix, and it appears uh, that this may just be a done deal as Lex's bodyguard and right-hand woman, Mercy Graves, is officially joining the cast. Titan's pro- uh, producers have described this version of Mercy as the ruthless, cunning right-hand and bodyguard of the notorious Lex Luthor serving her boss with unquestioned loyalty. Her connection to the Luthers runs deep, as Mercy has been a friend of the family and in Lex's life since they were young. Uh, Gumid is best known globally as playing Ashley in the 2014 Doctor Who Christmas special. She recently starred in the 10-episode ITV series Jekyll and Hyde, and she also currently stars in uh, in Free Reign. So we're going to start off with Brad. What are your thoughts on Natalie Gamid uh, joining as Mercy Graves? I I love them bringing all these characters into the second season. I I can't wait to to see how they pull it off. Uh, it's it's been I I have seen that Doctor Who special, but it's been a while, so I kind of need to refresh my memory on on her. Uh, I'm kind of curious if she's going to play it like a kind of silent and deadly Boba Fett type. You know, if she's like a henchman or, you know, because they're talking about these family connections. Uh, it'd be, you know, interesting to see all that play out. But uh, I can't wait to see all these characters come to Titans. Right. And uh, Steve, I know you're a big Doctor Who fan. Do you remember her from this Christmas special? And uh, how are you excited for her to be joining the cast as Mercy Grids? See, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, but looking at her face, I think she must have been under heavy prosthetics because I don't recognize her at all. But I know exactly who Mercy Graves is. And all I'm saying is that they've got a tough call with whoever they cast as Luther because John Cryer killed it. Oh, yeah, um, he, so I mean, fantastic. he absolutely <laughs> oh, killed man. it. So I'm really excited for Mercy and for all the other characters that are coming into Titans. But uh, now I don't remember her. Now I have to actually dig up my season four box set and uh, put that episode on so I can <laughs> see who she actually is. But yeah, looking forward to that definitely. And what about you, Seth? Uh, I don't know of the actor by their body of work. But just thinking about this on a a character scale, Mercy Graves is a really smart move. 
I think it's a great way to start introducing the concept of a liaison, a go-between for Lex Luthor, who speaks on his behalf and, and, you know, essentially is the voice of Lex. And yet at the same time, keeps us just distant enough, much like this first season of Titans kind of kept us away from Batman. We knew he was there. We knew that it, all the references to him, but we haven't actually seen him in person yet. And I feel like this uh, introduction of Mercy Graves is going to be that balance to the addition of Connor and will be that intercessory who is going to be communicating either with Connor separately, which is a great tension point to have him keeping a secret from a team he's just become, you know, a part of or just acquainted with, however that works out. But also how she'll be that sort of tension builder for us where when do we get to see Lex? When do we get to see, you know, the big bad? And when is it no longer just the voice who's doing all this talking where, you know, now you're going to deal with the, the man face to face. But I have to echo with Steve, uh, Cryer crushed it. You know, he was he was dirty, nasty, dramatic, and and in many ways just embraced it. It was like his second skin was I skinned me a Lex Luthor version, and I just wrapped my body inside of it, and behold, look what you've got because I've got the soul, baby. I just had to get the skin and shave the head, and I, I really think matching that is going to be something that they're going to be working on the whole time they build up this tension with Mercy and this idea of you don't get to see him yet. No, 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 no. We tell you when he he sees you when he's ready to see you. And putting her in that spot is just a great leverage point. Um, but I could go on for more about that because I love when storytelling does this because it tells me, nice, you're already thinking season three, four, and five. And that's the forward thinking I really enjoy when, when storytellers are like looking that far ahead. Somebody give me a hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and also joining uh, the cast of season two of Titans will be Drew Van Acker as Aqualad. Uh, about a week or two ago, we, we reported that Drew Van Acker had been eyed to play Aqualad in Titan season two. And it seems that it is now official. So what are your guys' thoughts on Aqualad joining the cast, and do you like this casting? Um, do you not notice that every actor they've cast for Titans membership is like a ripped-off-the-comics page actor? Uh, they're Superboy, they're Dick Grayson, they're Raven, just all of them just look the part i'm really glad they're going for the, the original aqualad as well because obviously being ancient as i am um i remember the original teen titans of aqualad robin and wonder woman and and wally wester's kid flash so actually seeing him as opposed to the aqualad sorry aquaman as he is now in young justice is is a lovely lovely touch so yeah cool um, I, I'm a kid again. Not that I ever stopped, if you ask my wife. But there, hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know he'll be joining a lot of new characters coming in. We've got like like Ravager and Jericho coming in. Uh, we've got uh, Wonder Girl do, getting a bigger role this coming season. So I feel like this is going to be a whole new uh, Titans from what we saw in that first season. So uh, Seth, what about you? What are your thoughts on all this? Well, I love that the casting decision has been made, um, and it really just focuses now my attention on the fact that, you know, you just said something really important there, Josh, and it's something that we've mentioned up until now as being a concern, not only with Titans, but also with Batman, is the idea of too many characters. 
But I just realized with all of these characters, this is a perfect chessboard for a man like Slade Wilson. He loves having all these kinds of characters in play. And like any great strategist, he loves a good distraction. And I really feel that these characters are going to be part of a larger sort of chess play on his part where he's got a 15 move strategy and each one of these people that are coming in are, are a part of it in some way. Maybe not all, you know, uh, are planned, but I think they're all accounted for that they're anticipated in some way. And in many ways, it'll feel like they're, they're just doing one thing, but I really feel like he's the one making all the moves and just, just thinking of that, having Aqualad as, as part of that uh, character dynamic and bringing in also the water world. And yet also, you know, so much of the great elements that we know from the history, because Steve, I don't know how you did it. You made me young. I think all my grace just disappeared when you referenced that, you know, I might be as young as I am. And I appreciate that, <laughs> but I do happen Whoa, to welcome. remember. Thank you. I loved Aqualad. I loved him as Tempest. I, I really loved just seeing his, his growth and the opportunity to be introduced to him and watch that trajectory, but also see that be part and parcel with this sort of chess playing that we know Slade loves to do with all of these characters and mess with their minds. Uh, I think he's just a great addition and he adds just another great dimension for, for how we can see that play out. Um, I'm Juice. <laughs> what about you, Brad? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree with the uh, chessboard strategy. And one of the intriguing things to me about bringing all these characters in is like, you know, like Seth, like you were saying, like it's they're looking, you know, seasons beyond where we're at now, because I think to bring in all these characters, they have to have a uh, kind of a grander scheme idea playing the long game to give all these characters a fair shake because you can't bring in a Superboy, You can't bring in a Deathstroke. You can't bring in these characters and not give them their due. So I just really makes me uh, excited for how this story is going to play out and the little Easter eggs that we're going to get hints to what's to come and how they set up the, you know, how the chessboard is set up. And so do you guys think, okay, so, you know, you're saying Deathstroke, but then also we have this stuff going on with Lex Luthor. How do you think that's all going to mesh together? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges there is you've got essentially the two biggest boys on the block if they do end up in the same room together. Um, the two guys who think they're the smartest and they've got the experience that says to each of them, I am the smartest. Now, who's really got the deepest you know, degree of manipulation and deviousness? Well, I think that's a vote we should cast out to the rest of the listeners and they can vote in on who do you think's more devious, Slade Wilson or Lex Luthor? And it's pretty much a 50-50 split. But I think trying to figure out uh, all the different pieces of each of their manipulations and then watching them play out against each other could be really exciting because at some point, as the saying goes, as soon as the first shot gets fired, every plan goes out the window. And as soon as something that they want to work doesn't work the way it's supposed to because of the other guys manipulations or machinations man i really think we're we're going to see some fun stuff where they have to adapt and uh be flexible and we can really see who's maybe more the jazz musician compared to who's the chess player i'm not sure that's that's really where i think we could see some really fun opportunity available to us yeah i think we're also going to get the payoff for that 
post credit scene from the film with uh, Deathstroke joining Luther on his yacht. We're finally going to see where that's going, not on the big screen, but on the DC Universe. And just to see those two, like you said, Seth, those two intelligent, manipulative puppet masters uh, of the DC villains really cut loose on on my favourite DC team. Um, yeah, really excited for that. Really, really excited. Definitely. Uh, and DC Universe isn't the only place that's got some Batman stuff going on. We also got a couple of new trailers, one for Batwoman and one for Pennyworth. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on these two trailers. But, uh, if you're excited for the shows and uh, just your general general opinions. Uh, we're going to start with Steve. Um, Batman shows? Excited? Nah. What do you think? <laughs> of course I'm excited. I have to be honest, when I first heard about Pennyworth, um, hot on the heels of the cancellation of Gotham, I was thinking, Pennyworth? Alfred? His own show? Really? But then I thought, hang on, young Alfred. Then I heard SAS, Espionage, the 60s. And the more we talked about it over the weeks on the, on the podcast, the more and more excited I got. And this trailer, yes, I, I'm seeing Michael Caine. I'm seeing Bond. I'm seeing, um, finally, we're seeing a bit of Paloma Faith as a villain. And she worries me because she's a little bit scary. She's a little bit kooky, a little bit weird. Loving it. So, Definitely excited about that. And how could I not be excited about a Ruby Rose Batwoman who's walking down the street, helps a homeless person, gets told off for doing so, turns around, gives the cop a big F you and does it again. Um, that's Batwoman. <laughs> she cannot be told <laughs> by anybody. Even Batman can't tell her what to do. So that part of her characterization. Ah, oh, super excited. Yeah, really, yeah. really happy about these ones. As a Batman nerd, <laughs> yes, put a big yeah. Joker grin on my face. Yeah, I thought that Bat <laughs> that Batman Woman teaser was a perfect kind of almost like just quick introduction to her personality, you know, for, for people who may not know much about her. It's like, here's this yeah, short little exactly. clip and then boom, you, you know exactly the kind of person that she is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what do you think, Brad? Yeah, I, I agreed. It was such a great little setup. It said so much in 30 seconds or however long it was. You know, it you know exactly what this character is about and wh what kind of Batwoman we're going to get. Uh, it was just pretty genius in how they set it up. And with, with, with the Pennyworth trailer, if this was not Batman connected, I would still be excited for it. If it was yeah. just some random spy show, yes. it still looks good. And the fact that it is Batman related just gives it that much more, uh, you know, excitement for me. Uh, this, I, I just think this series is going to be uh, really fun. And I really always love the really charismatic villains, the, you know, and she definitely looks like she's going to be one. So, yeah, I'm, the more I see the show, the more excited I get. What about you, Seth? I uh, I I'll be honest. I watched the Batwoman teaser first time with the sound off because I it loaded on my screen and I pressed yeah, play and I didn't exactly have the volume. I watched it the first time. Really, mm -hmm. and it was really interesting because without the sound, until you actually hear what's being described in the dialogue, it's just a scene. It's just you know, there's a bit of attitude, and then she goes back, and I was like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say to make her so you know? 
adamant. And as soon as I played the volume, I thought, what a brilliant, as has been said by others just before me, what a really short, brilliant introduction to that character. Go ahead. You're you're only going to encourage him. And I love that attitude of like, you know what? Somebody should watch me do it right in front of your face. What are you going to do? Stop me from giving somebody a gold watch? I'd like to see you try. You know, just this like, I hope everybody encourages them. I hope everybody gives them a gold watch. I hope you say that there was such a defiance there that was just perfect. Pitch perfect and so economical. I mean, how long was that teaser? It didn't feel like more than 30 seconds to me. And so packed with everything I needed to know to enjoy the show. I don't need to know anything else. If you just showed me that clip, I'd be like, hey, what's that show? I'll check it out. I don't don't even care. But I know it's Batwoman. So I already know that you've just told me and an audience who hasn't yet learned about her just how cool she is and just what they can kind of expect on the Pennyworth trailer. So good. Just absolutely love it. And uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who caught the one or two moments when his phrasing sounded so much like Michael Caine. I stopped and looked at the screen twice. (laughs) Yes. Right? Where he's like, you know, you seem like that. Well, I don't fancy that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) are you kidding me? That's just Michael Caine. Ah. And uh, as far as, uh, you know, how it connects to the Batman mythos, I totally agree that if if I didn't know this was about the Batman universe in history, I would still be intrigued because I love the idea of this soldier who's introduced in that beginning of the trailer, who's torn by something horrific that, you know, changed his attitude towards war and towards the, the thing he'd been fighting for and how now he's looking for something new. And, and he's got this opportunity to do something just different from what most of the guys who are coming home from are doing. And also because of it, uh, there's just this this great introduction of this guy who's really sort of unknown. He does a little security, but what's he really capable of? And the way those final moments in that trailer, when he pulls his gun and you see Alfred go to town, all I thought to myself was, this guy probably just, he's got all the secrets and stories we can't wait to watch episode after episode. And you gave us the perfect glimpse right there. Everything about him is a possibility. And then at the end, it's a reality. And it was so strong. Um, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to let it go at that. It was just such a great additional trailer and such a great introduction to what promises to be a really fun and amazing show. I, I think it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for it. And heading into our final uh, topic for TV and streaming news, Sci-Fi is working on a Krypton spinoff for Lobo. This week, season two of Krypton aired, and the main man, Lobo, made his first appearance. And what an appearance it was. I don't know if you guys have watched that episode yet, but I did. And I really, I really loved uh, how how they portrayed Lobo in this. Uh, But now it seems that Sci-Fi is actually working on a spinoff for him. Uh, And I just wanted to to know if you guys did watch the, the season and if you're excited to see Lobo get his own series. Uh, Brad, we're going to start with you. Uh, Lobo was a character I never really got. Um, I know he was huge in the 90s, and I always appreciated him more than really liked him. So I'm kind of hoping that uh, this season of Krypton will kind of give me a new perspective. Uh, They must be pretty confident in what they have, and what's going to be coming up in Krypton to kind of announce that they're going to try a spinoff series. So... Uh, you know, at this point, if anything, it makes me more excited for what's to come on Krypton. And what about you, Seth? 
I didn't get a chance to see this version of Lobo yet. I, it's on my uh, DVR. I recently just binged all the way through season one of Krypton, so I was yeah, really I, looking I forward did, to. I literally <laughs> did the same thing. Finished it the day before the season two premiere came out. And, uh, well, I knew we were working on Super Soldiers, and I wanted to finish the book. I really wanted to sort of get the whole thing. So that's something – this is sort of my reward coming up is uh, Swamp Thing Episode number 3 as well as Krypton Season 2 Episode 1. All these things are now my reward once we finish podcasting today. Like, this is my last bit of responsible Seth, and afterwards it's going to be Play Seth, and Play <laughs> Seth is going to watch all this great stuff and have fun. But just based on what I can think of with Lobo and immediately, there's a huge opportunity to really go in lots of different directions. Personally, my favorite Lobo is a tie between Lobo that I saw in the animated versions, who is just hilarious. I absolutely just love all the incarnations and also the Lobo from uh, DC's uh, 52 series that they were doing uh, during the sort of transition period after uh, Infinite Crisis. I really like that sort of like torn spiritual. So I feel that there's this huge range of possibility as long as they don't try and turn him into a Beetlejuice kind of character in some way. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the makeup, maybe something else. But as long as they don't try and go too comical and, and find that great balance of humor and, and also insanity that kind of is Lobo because many parts of him just don't make sense. And Brad, I can agree with you in the nineties comic, the art that went with it just made me go, I'll pick this up later. And then I never did. But, <laughs> but when he guest starred in other, you know, titles, I loved him. I thought he was fun because either he was kind of goofy, kind of clumsy, kind of a drunk, or just as I recently saw him in the most recent uh, Titans when he meets his offspring or relative of some kind named Crush. I mean, man, he's, he's really brutal and, and not really kind to those of his ilk. So uh, I'm really curious to see because I know just how much potential is available and a show done right would be a really successful spinoff that I think sci-fi would want to include. Yeah, I just, I just don't. I, I guess my my issue with Lobo was that I just don't think he was a character that has aged well uh, mm. for some reason. And now, you know, I'm hoping that this is what I was saying with the new perspective. I hope this can kind of kind of reinvent him for me. Yeah, like. When Seth was talking about, you know, how he was kind of worried about things like with the makeup and stuff like that, that was one of my biggest concerns when I first saw the first image of this Lobo. I was like, I don't know how I feel about this makeup. You know, it looked kind of, but seeing him in the show, it totally works. And the the attitude that the actor whose name I cannot for life of me remember uh, brings for this character, it's 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 spot on. Uh, it's it's like they literally like how you guys were talking before about you know pulling these characters right off the screen when we were talking about Titans. They did that with this character. They pulled him right out of the comics, plopped him right in here. He, his mannerisms, his, his you know the language that he uses, all of it, it it's spot on. And I absolutely and he even had, he has like a Scottish brogue, which I never knew that I would have loved so much. <laughs> Fantastic. It fits so perfectly for this character. I, I absolutely love it, and I can't wait for the next episode. Uh, Steve, what about you? Did you get a chance to see this yet? Uh, and are you excited about it, the character at all? To echo and to expand on everything everybody said, that back in the comics, um, honestly, I, I could have taken him or leaving him, apart from the first few issues when he was introduced, and he was created by Alan Grant, 
And the fact that Lobo is Scottish and so is his creator, I just thought that was just the brilliant touch. And of course, it's a fantastic accent for a guy who's supposed to be a hard man, supposed to be a brawler and a fighter. I think that's absolute genius. And then going to what Seth said, I always preferred Lobo, apart from the first few Alan Grant issues of the comic, in the cartoons and in the spin-offs. He was just a much more interesting, funny character. And now, again, as I review uh, Teen Titans for a certain website that we all write for, um, to see him now come face-to-face with his daughter as well, he's getting his own show on the basis of just that first appearance on season two of Krypton. The main man is the number one bastard, and he needs his own show. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> do it. And, do, it. Uh, do it now. If I can just add in for uh you know, for what you were saying, Josh, I really appreciate that, you know, you gave all of those reservations you had, but then how the uh the belief in the character was reinforced by the performance. Because I think anybody else who's listening that had the same reservations you mentioned and that I, you know, expressed and that others have mentioned would would be heartened or encouraged to know that, you know, you had those same concerns until you saw it. And then after you saw it, all those concerns went away. And as Steve just brought up, that the choices that are made for how he speaks and how he presents are, you know, clearly from the sound of it, really brilliant. I'm encouraged now compared to how I first saw the picture. Now I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, these guys are selling me. You're giving me a great accent to look forward to. And all of the things that I know Lobo says from fetal giz to everything else that I'm expecting to hear come out of this actor's mouth and present in a way that I'm like, hey, there's Lobo. Ah, That's the Lobo we know and hate and kind of despise but love. So I really appreciate that you mentioned you had those same reservations. But as soon as you saw the actor, it sounds like they all went away. Yeah, it was, and I, that should I, I be a lesson it. to everybody out there, shouldn't it? Really, because everyone was saying John Cryer as Lex Luthor. Oh yeah. no! And mm-hmm. everyone's saying uh, Pattinson as Batman. Oh no! Let the people come on screen, do their job. They were cast for a reason, yeah. uh, and exactly. then complain. That's that's my point. Completely agree. And I'd also say if you're going to listen to somebody's opinion who you say you value, listen to someone who's seen it, not just what their basis of their interpretation based on the same kind of concerns and fears you might have. Because then you just listen to somebody who's, you know, talking for something they know you want to hear without ever having something to go with it to back it up. What you've got from Josh is I watched it and these are the reasons why I can tell you it's great. You've got somebody who's seen the content and is given the reason behind it. And if you're going to listen to anybody, as far as I'm concerned, that's the kind of people you should be listening to. Someone who's seen it and can validate it based on their experience, which they're offering is, you know, credibility. I'd say Josh is pretty credible. I try. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. All right. So that finishes up our TV and streaming news. And before we head into our comic book news, we are going to take another pause for a quick break from our sponsors. This is Seth Singleton from DC Comics News, here to tell you about the Spinner Rack. Each and every week, DC Comics publishes so many great books, it can be hard to decide where to invest your time and money. And that's where the Spinner Rack comes in. The Spinner Rack is my honest attempt to rate, review, score the top five books from DC Comics each and every week. How can you listen? It's easy. 
All you have to do is go to your favorite platform, subscribe to DC Comics News Podcasts, and wait for the new episode to load up. Join me each and every week as I sift through the best from DC Comics and pick my top five books. Can't wait to share them with you and to hear your scores when you share them with us right here on the DC Comics News Podcast. All right. Welcome back, DC fans. Uh, this is DC Comics News Podcast, and we are back with some comic book news now. Uh, Stepan Sedgwick will re- be retelling the origin of, of Harley Quinn in a new book series called Harleen. Uh, Sedgwick will serve as both writer and artist on this new take of The Clown Princess of Crime. The official synopsis for this three-issue DC Black Label miniseries is as follows. Dr. Harleen Quinzel has discovered a revolutionary cure for the madness of Gotham City. She just needs to prove it actually works. Through her studies of the criminals and sociopaths that pass through the halls of Arkham Asylum and the GCPD, Harleen is seeking to end the growing apathy among the citizens of Gotham. But with the criminal justice and mental health establishments united against her, the brilliant young psychologist must take drastic measures to save Gotham from itself. Uh, Harleen number one will hit comic shops and digital retailers on September 25th. Uh, what do you guys think about this new take on uh, Harley Quinn's origin story? I think it's time for a really good, um, a really strong story. One that's going to sort of start us on what, based on the description, seems to be a, a heroic quest. I'm going to save the city from madness. And in many ways, it's like so many you know, others who have taken on that challenge. I mean, Batman himself is trying to save Gotham from itself. Dr. Harleen Quinzel is is trying to do it. She thinks she's got a cure. And yet, you know, the uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. She she tries. She really wants to sort of make this happen. Actually, they use the quote in there, too. Now I just feel stupid. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of the way to describe it. And I'm like, oh, look at that. The story mentions it itself. It's it's really just a smart way to show that she's got this great idea and she just needs enough time to make it happen. And yet, despite all that, we're going to see just what it is that's going to cause her to make that that shift. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I'm curious to see what the black label wants to offer uh, that's different from what's already been presented so far. But I do feel that anytime you go back to a character's beginning and and start from a, a new perspective, as I've seen more recently with like uh, the Flash and their year one story and what I've seen with a lot of other year one stories, this idea of going and looking at just what that beginning looks like and what all the different possible motivations could be that that leads to the decisions that turn into Harlequin. And uh, I think this will be a really great opportunity also to have a, a clean, concise uh, three issue origin story for uh, Harley. And that's something that I feel like hasn't really been complete uh, in this in this kind of style. And I think that the Black Label gives it an opportunity to do just a little bit more. I'm hoping it can you know, not only succeed, but exceed that. But I'm greatly encouraged by this this sort of like I've got this plan. And I know I can do something big and great. I just need to put my theory to test and to work at it. And and yet somehow it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. And that's going to be a great story to follow. 
And Steve, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Very similar, actually. Um, I also have to say that you know it's going to look great because he's a brilliant artist. I love his work. I really, really do. And the snippets we've got from the book um, so far look absolutely gorgeous. And I don't see it so much as a um, reinvention or retelling of, of Harley's origin. It's more like a more in-depth look of her as a psychiatrist. Well, I think we really need to see, so we can actually see that this is a really smart woman, driven woman, who just gets led down the garden path by the joke or, or the insanity she thinks she might have a handle on or, or a cue for might just be something that's already eating at, at the inside of her dying to get out. And the whole question of um, mental health and, and, and everything else that goes with it, if it's handled delicately and intelligently, and that's what DC's Black Label seems to be doing, could do a hell of a lot for the character and and for perception of uh, insanity and and mental health as a whole. So it's going to look great. The premise is great. So I'm actually really, really excited about this one. And Harley Quinn, again, depending on who's writing, has always left me either really excited or really like, why bother? Even in recent years, um, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor did great. Then there was a whole middle period, which was bad. And now um, uh, Stuart Humphreys, is Stuart Humphreys? I can't remember. The, the, Stephanie something, something Humphreys writing now, who's brilliant. Uh, Sam Humphreys. Sam Humphreys, yeah, brilliant. His, his current run's really, really good. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, that art will have me coming back for more as well. So looking forward to it and what about you brad i i totally agree uh with steve about the the art that they show in the story i mean it's just incredible uh you know and i i really i'm loving what the black label is doing i'm, I'm so excited for all these stories that they've announced recently and this is right up there uh yeah i'm i'm pretty excited for this uh the whole layout, the whole presentation, the whole background of the story, it, uh, you know, and the fact that it is black label so that the gloves can come off and there's not really any restrictions with what kind of story you can tell. Uh, I'm very interested in seeing how this plays out. So I have a side question then on this for you guys. Now that, you know, since they're able to do these short, uh, you know, black label series of pretty much anything they, they want to do, is there anybody else that you'd like to see get like maybe like a short origin uh story done in this in this similar vein you can jump in whoever has, has an idea interesting that's a great question really good question oh would, not enough I notice be, i would be <laughs> curious about what they could do with a vigilante story Ooh. okay okay uh, in that you know, I don't know if that if that character has the recognition that uh, <laughs> that could pull off a whole Black Label series, but I think they could do some really cool things. Yes, yeah, like old timers. Yeah, I'd love to see something like a like a Sinestro three issue, just like a like, just I don't know, just some sort of maybe origin, maybe just like a nice story just built around around Sinestro. Since the Green Lanterns are like my favorite uh, heroes throughout you know DC. Uh, and Sinestro is one of my favorite villains, so that's something I think I would like to see. 
That's a great one. Like I, the first two that come to mind, just as I was trying to picture who would really, uh, the question, or uh, Ooh, strangely question. enough, uh, Phantom Stranger. Um, mm, all right. I, I, I don't know what it is, but I can just see both of them, and I'm thinking to myself, what's a three-book story look like for you guys? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, what kind of things are they chasing down? And, You're talking um, like the original question or like Renee Montoya question? I would be fine with either. In fact, a story with both would be really beautiful. Um, You know, I really think that could be a a great sort of like, what if, I mean, here's just, just because now that we're going ahead and just pulling on the the thread of the sweater and I don't care how far it unravels. um, (laughs) What if there's more than one question? Yeah. That that could be, yeah. Or, you know, (laughs) question incorporated. I mean, who knows? But you know, the idea behind just what is either one or different versions of that character look like when I mean, we only see them when they're interacting with others. What's what's the daily, you know, or what's the long term sort of goal? What's the big conspiracy? If you're always working after a conspiracy, d- does he have a black book like Batman, you know, more recently with that sort of like these are the ones that have always gotten away and the crime I'm always trying to solve? That would be that would be a lot of fun for me uh, or just to sort of get uh, someone's really as grassroots take on someone like stranger or specter and say, Hey, you know what? It's time to stop being afraid of these characters. Time to get a little meta time to get a little out there and and really just try something, you know, try telling a story and make these characters real instead of just so distant and uh, ethereal. That's me. Those are some great picks. What about you, Steve? Were you able to come up with something? Yeah. I think that everyone needs a little bit more Zatanna in their lives. Hell yeah. All right. Um, I, I'd love, I mean, why, why, why um, does this character not have her own book? I mean, especially, especially after the, the, the brilliant um, detective comic story, which then led to the one that I keep harping on about. And I'm slowly converting <laughs> the entire world to um, with just happily. She's great she is such a character and to see maybe magic and how it affects things that we might not even know about uh the little things of of why we walk into a room and forget why we walked into that room or why um we act certain ways or do certain things that somehow sometimes just come out of us and we think hang on why the hell did i just say that to this person um Little things like that and little <laughs> things and how that's affected momentous decisions in history. And I, I think that magic sometimes is just something sitting in our shoulders or pushing us to do or say something. And the fact that her magic is based on words and speaking incantations backwards. Um, to, so she's got that restraint. So she doesn't go mad and, and use her power in the way she, she actually can and fears using That'd be a fascinating DC Bat label book, I think. So thanks for bringing that up, Joff. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. a lovely, lovely Agreed. question. I, I love all those ideas. And, and I'll be honest, I'm surprised. I mean, with how good Justice League Dark has been, I'm surprised they haven't had some offshoots like like a Zatanna book or something like that. It really right? shocks me that they haven't done anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't know what Agreed. sales are and, like on that yeah. book, but it's such a good book that it, it, I feel like it deserves to have more out there. Plus, you've got that great relationship and the confusing sort of emotional relationship between her and her father. I mean, that that yeah. you've got 150 Absolutely. issues right there. 
Like what what was what were all these things he was doing that Justice League Dark is only just beginning to reveal and all of the history that was introduced with the idea of, you know, how it was he raised her with this understanding of magic from such an early age. But now this concrete figure in her life is gone. Steve, really great choice, man. Uh, that I'm really excited. If anybody's listening, please. Black Label Zatanna. Thank you. <laughs> did you get to uh, read those ex machina sets? I think Brad did, didn't you? The, uh, the yeah, I did. Story I did. I really, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I have it. not. It's on my agenda. I know I will. Rabbit. I know I will. Rabbit. I will, and I'll just love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I've been behind for the last month, man. I'm catching up. I swear. Yeah, I can vouch for it. I, hey, you I'm I'm already convinced. Once once I did Justice League Dark, that first trade, I was I was hooked. I was totally sucked in. I, I believe I believe all, as should everyone else. Just just go with it, man. Just go with it. Buy <laughs> Justice League Dark. Buy it. Buy it. There go you buy go. It now. Uh, Josh, see what you a, started. Yeah. On a bit of a more somber note, uh, DC has canceled a couple of their books with the September solicitation being revealed. It has come out that they have canceled the Teen Titans Go comic and Scooby-Doo Team-Up. Uh, Teen Titans Go will end with issue number 36, and Scooby-Doo Team-Up will end with issue 50. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I I love the Teen Titans Go book. I, I've been reading it and reviewing it for a while now. Um, I'm a fan of the series. I know a lot of people aren't, but I, I am. And this book, for those who, who love the show... This book is is perfect. It reads just like the series. Uh, the the humor is there. The dialogue is there. Um, my favorite writer on it is Charlie Fish. He he knows exactly how to capture these characters from that show and put them onto the page. It, it it's perfect and it's structured just like the, the show with two small stories per book. So I personally am very sad to see this one go. Um, and as far as Scooby-Doo team up with, with the end of this, this actually leaves only one Hanna-Barbera title left in, in, at DC, and that's the, the main Scooby-Doo uh, Where Are You series, uh, which I'll be honest, I won't be surprised if it gets canned as well, as it's been reported for a while now that uh, DC would be separating from Hanna-Barbera. Uh, rumor has had it that WB execs in charge of the Hanna-Barbera licensing have grown increasingly unhappy with the way these characters have been portrayed at DC from the 1950s gay playwright version of Snagglepuss, which was fantastic in my opinion, to uh, the politically and satirical uh, Flintstones, to even the post-apocalyptic Scooby-Doo apocalypse, which uh, I personally also love. Um, So I just want to get your guys' thoughts on the cancellation of Teen Titans Go and Scooby-Doo Team-Up. Brad, we're going to start with you. I think the thing that that stuck out to me about this is just the fact that Teen Titans Go seems like... uh, a really nice gateway for a lot of kids to get into reading comics. Yeah, exactly. And to get, you know, that's kind of the, that's how you keep this medium going is you've got to get the kids into it. And the fact that that comic's not going to exist anymore is one less avenue for them to get exposed. Uh, and that kind of bums me out. And, I, and the same yeah. thing goes with the Scooby-Doo story. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one less way for kids to get into comics. What about you, Seth? Yeah, I agree with uh, with the Teen Titans Go. It wasn't something that I read often, but it felt like any time I flipped through it that it, it offered that same tone and that same sort of energy that you experienced from the television show, which I also didn't watch with regularity. It just 
sometimes with certain shows, I'm like, look, when it gets to a streaming thing, I'll figure out a schedule to watch it. But on its own schedule, it just doesn't work for me. And whenever I think I'm going to catch it or I suddenly am exposed to it, it's like, oh, it's the last five minutes of it. Wow. I wonder if the rest of it was, in it. you know, I, I just never really had the right timing with it. Regarding Scooby-Doo team up. I'm torn because I actually had the opportunity to review this a few times, as well as the Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. And of the two, I thought Scooby-Doo Apocalypse was actually doing a lot more that was fun and engaging. I wanted Scooby-Doo to team up to do better than I felt that it did at times with its stories. Sometimes it did exactly what I want. It just gave you this great glimpse of these great classic characters teamed up with Scooby-Doo and you get to see them at their best. But other times I felt like it was really sort of a forced effort that there was uh, a good attempt, but that it, it felt like there was some strain going on. So to be honest with the Scooby-Doo team up, it doesn't surprise me. Although I know that the potential was there. I'm not sure what might've sort of created the, the issues with some of those stories that, that didn't work as well in my opinion, but that, this is still a great possibility and one that if Hanna-Barbera is willing to allow DC to work with their characters in the future could turn out really well uh, should they try it again. But I'm a little disappointed to hear that this is you know, due to their reaction to how some of these characters have been handled because clearly there's been a lot of you know, critical recognition of some of those examples and I thoroughly enjoyed Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. I, I would like to see you know, more Hannah Bark. I'd love to see, uh, I mean, isn't Thundar and uh, a few others still part of that? Or who is it? The uh, There was like a warrior class cartoon that, that was kind of fun, like space, you know, sword and sorcery kind of fantasy. I'd love to see some ideas like that come back in. I don't think it was Thundar. I think I'm completely off. But, um, <laughs> but I'm remembering that, you know, there's more to Hanna-Barbera than just the characters we've seen and the characters that we have seen. I've seen some really great examples of. So I would like to see more of that if Hanna-Barbera is willing to allow DC that same creative sort of vision. What about you, Steve? Have you, uh, what are your thoughts on all this? Um, I, I, I've never really got into Teen Titans Go, the show, or the comic, but I know that just like Brad said, that it's a fantastic way to get kids to read comics, and that's so important. So, again, we've discussed this so much on the show that we used to grab comic books from newsstands and corner shops and everything else, and now you can't get them anywhere outside of a comic book store. And to have a title there that kids can pick up and read without being worried about what they're reading or too much violence or gore or horror, whatever else, it, it, it's a little bit sad. Even though it's not my cup of tea, it had a valid place in, in the market and it, it's going to be a shame to see it go. As for Scooby-Doo, damn, Scooby-Doo's part of all of our childhoods. You know, it's just one of those shows that never gets old. It, it's it's always been there. And to have a, a, a comic book version, and I agree that Scooby Apocalypse was way better. That was just really cool and left field. And that actually took the Scooby-Doo characters and br brought them to a different level and made them a bit more grown up, but without losing any of the magic and charm of the characters. And after the recent, I don't know if you guys saw the, the Scooby-Doo crossover with Supernatural, which was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, it was so good. Scooby-Natural? Oh, yeah. Oh, that. yeah, it was amazing. Um, so to lose these books, it's sad. It really is sad. And I'm hoping that 
Um, maybe DC can do a bit more with maybe their Looney Tunes franchise because some of the Looney Tunes DC crossovers were incredible. So we might be losing the Hanna-Barbera books, but we've still got Tweety Pie and that that Batman Elmer Fudd crossover is still one of the best things I've ever read. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a way forward, I hope. But I, I'm, I'm kind of sad about these cancellations. I, I have to be honest. So our next story up is... Uh... DC's dollar comics format will be returning after more than three decades. Uh, DC's dollar comics format, after 36 years, will be coming back to stands beginning on September 4th. The publisher will be reprinting special issues from its history as $1 reprints. The line will begin with uh, Detective Comics 854, which is a Batwoman elegy, on September 4th. Then we'll release Batman number 608, which was Hush. Uh, first issue of Hush on September 11th, Harley Quinn number one from the New 52 run on September 18th, and Crisis on Infinite Earths number one on September. Uh, so we're going to start with Steve. What, what do you think about all this? Oh, I said earlier, I feel like I'm a kid again. This is <laughs> taking me right back. I remember seeing these big fat dollar comics and uh, and stuff like that, like the 80 space, the 80 page specials and the 100 page specials that. I picked up and just devoured and to actually see that format coming back and at that price, it's great. I mean, I don't care if they're reprints because the ones they they've picked classics one and all again, this is the thing to pick up, spend a buck, pick up this comic, give it to your nieces, give it to your nephews, give it to the kids that you know and, and let them experience the magic of, of reading a comic book. And they're all great first issues Really good launching pads and a good range again of ages. You give Batman Hush to a 12, 13 year old and they'll just devour it. Brilliant news. This is the kind of stuff that I like waking up and reading. Makes me very, very happy. Oh, oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I'll be picking up all of them. What about you, Seth? What are your, what are your thoughts on these uh, dollar comic, uh, dollar comic format? It's really easy to echo, you know, so much of what Steve just said, because so many of these are great jumping off points or great introductions to classic storylines, whether it's the first issue of Hush, uh, the the Batwoman elegy, the uh, Harley Quinn number one or Crisis uh, on Infinite Earths number one. I only came across Crisis, Crisis on Infinite Earths was number 12, stumbled across this ragtag chewed up issue in the back of like a 75 or 50 cent bin and grabbed it and thought to myself what is this madness happening on this cover what what is all this insanity and then reading it and going oh my god what led up to all this how could all of this have happened and the idea that you could start someone with issue number one and just let them dive into such a great story like that or all of the other ones listed for a buck yeah, what what amazing stocking stuffers, what amazing uh, little just $1 gifts to drop in for somebody, you know, for whatever reason you want to give them a great story that can set them off on this amazing adventure of discovering all of these great characters and stories that we've come to know and love and that are so iconic. And now you can just scoop them up for a buck, hand them out to those that you think will really, you know, engage or love or, you know, just like we were saying with Teen Titans Go!, now with these comics, you can be that bridge to introduce somebody to the world of comic books. Yeah, absolutely. I love that they're that they're kind of toying around with these these old formats and stuff. And I mean, you know, reprinting these old storylines. I I love that they're doing that. And they they were they've been doing this with their Walmart uh, exclusives as well. Their their big hundred page 
uh, Walmart books. Uh, and I know that, you know, Hush and Harley Quinn, uh, New 52 have been part of those books. So, you know, people have been able to uh, re-experience those stories. So, but it's nice uh, for people who, for one, can't get to Walmart or whose Walmart don't have them, uh, can still have the opportunity to relive these, uh, the, these stories issue by issue. Uh, the way it was, you know, back in the day. Uh, so, Brad, what about you? What, what were your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I've talked on this podcast multiple times about how much I liked uh, Batwoman Elegy. So I was really glad to see that that was one of the first ones. Out of yeah, the absolutely. Brilliant series. Brilliant. And um, <clears throat> uh, they, they seem like good choices, uh, you know, very timely. in the fact that we got the Batwoman TV show coming out, you got the Harley Quinn animated series coming out on dc universe got the hush movie the coming hush out. movie coming out yeah crisis so this is like coming out choice. yeah or the, and, the crossover <laughs> coming up yeah so it, it it uh it made sense and every if you're a dc fan it's you should be obligated to read crisis it's such an important oh yeah story in and the dc universe so yeah i, I was really pleased with the, the one that started it all isn't it yeah yeah and I, and I've done that with dollar issues where it's like, okay, I want to get, I know some people that I want to get to read comics. So here, you know, here's issue for a dollar. Check it out. You know, I've, I've done that. So it'll be fun to do, you know, to do with these series, with these new, uh, new reissues. Yeah. And the thing about, you know, some of these series is it can be difficult. Like, yeah, you'll be able to find some of them in the dollar bids, but you know, there's all, it always happens to be like one or two that are like, way higher price than everything else and so it makes it more difficult to get that collection so i think doing these reprints at a dollar and, and going through the runs like that i think it'll be uh, be interesting to see how it affects people kind of becoming comic book fans if it pulls people in uh, and gets them to read more so i'm interested in that so it's kind of hilarious yeah. as well that uh, growing up to, to get a dollar comic was like a treat. It was like a big deal. Spend a pound on a comic. You're crazy. And these days, it's actually yeah. a bargain to yeah. get a comic <laughs> for a dollar. Yeah. When, when so I, the way that's turned around is brilliant to me. I love that. When yeah. I started collecting, they were 60 cents. That ages me. But, you know, the funny thing is, too, is that when you would get a dollar fifty comic, it was like it was the annuals. It was like the the thicker yeah. two or three size issues. And it was always like, well, you had to really splurge to get that dollar fifty comic. And now now we're like a dollar. Oh my god, that's such a great deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially when your big issues are like seven, eight dollars now. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Even the Walmart books are five bucks, aren't they? Yeah. There's four four issues in each though. So that's not that bad. You know, you're talking a dollar twenty-five. That's good value. For each issue that's, good you know, value. that's inside. So, all right, our next story is uh, the Shazam Who Laughs coming this September. The cover to September's uh, Batman Superman number two has officially been tweeted out by series writer Joshua Williamson, and it shows a malevolent-looking Shazam. Williamson wrote, "The first of the characters corrupted by the Batman Who Laughs." You'll fear the power of the dark multiverse. Shazam! Uh, the recently released preview to August's Batman Superman number one reveals a scene with a dark version of Billy Batson attacking the main DCU's Batman. So I just want to get you guys' thoughts. What do you think about a Shazam who laughs coming to the DCU? Uh, Seth, we're going to start with you. 
It sounds like a very dangerous demigod. I mean, all the godlike power, none of the responsibility, and all of the sort of evil intent. That's a horrifying combination. You know, mix in just a little bit of the devilishness that, you know, a kid between the age of, say, 12 and 15 can come up with and then have the adult-like and godlike strength to put into practice. Sounds like really Justice League's like worst nightmare. I mean, for anybody, really. What about you, Brad? Uh, yeah, I I agree. And it's uh, it's kind of an interesting choice because, you know, he is such a powerful character and he is such definitely the more lighthearted side of DC. So doing such a flip on that will be will be an interesting uh, an interesting story. Uh, and you're right too, where he's a teenager and he's impulsive, and you know how that would play into the dark multiverse version of the character is very, very intriguing. It's definitely an issue to pick up. All right, and Steve, are you as interested as the rest of us for this uh, upcoming uh, take on Shazam? Listen, I got the press release with the first five or six pages of Batman Superman number one. And it's literally Superman and Batman getting into the Batman Who Laughs version of the Batcave and being attacked by one of the zombie Robins. And they subdue him and he reveals he's that Earth's Billy Batson. So I just thought, O-M-F-G, what? And obviously, issue two is the next stage. He says the magic word and he becomes a, a Shazam Who Laughs. And I think how scary the Batman who laughs is and he's powerless, but he's got the cunning and intelligence of Batman. Add the power of ancient gods and deities and the fact that he's a kid who's been messed up by a Joker Batman and the possibilities are endless. Yes, I'm excited and also a little bit terrified. (laughs) So, yeah, um, I'm going to be grabbing this series. It follows directly on from Batman Who Laughs, which I've been loving and, and reviewing for, for Dark Knight News. So, yeah, I'm buying that one, baby. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that one. So our next story, some new Legion flight rings in advance of Legion of Superheroes return. The new Legion of Superheroes writer, uh, Brian Michael Bendis, has announced that DC is in production on a redesigned Legion flight ring that will eventually be available to the public. Tweeted, Psst, y'all know we're getting new Legion of Superheroes rings too, right? Already designed and in production. I would not have teased this this hard unless we were bringing all the thunder. Uh, no details on the design, release date, or price have been announced yet. So is this something that you guys are interested in? Would, uh, would you pick these up if given the chance? We're going to start with you, Steve. Hell yeah. I can't get my <laughs> WWE Hall of Fame ring anymore because I'm just old and past it. But a Legion <laughs> ring, a Green Lantern ring, a Flash ring, I want all of them. Again, it's like being a kid again. We're getting the Justice Society back. We're getting the Legion of Superheroes back uh, and Legion flight rings. I just need to find myself a bank to rob, really, don't I? <laughs> and what about you, Brad? Uh, it, it, the thing that grabbed me is the fact that he says I would have not have te- I wouldn't have teased this hard unless we were bringing all the thunder. So I can't 
can't wait to see what he means by that. What what's the story gonna hold um, beyond the, beyond the rings that you can pick up? That makes me really excited for the upcoming series. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what about you, Seth? Are you excited for these? I'm immensely excited because I'm gonna go way back for just a minute to when I was in the seventh grade and seventh or eighth grade. I I can't be. I want to say maybe it was eighth. And if you guys remember that there was an issue of the Green Lantern where Hal Jordan comes back to be the Green Lantern Sector 2814, he has to fight Guy Gardner with no rings and it's just a fisticuffs duel. And my comic book shop, do you guys remember that? If, if not, no biggie. But my local comic book shop owner had told me that as part of a promo for that, they would be releasing Green Lantern rings. And my little eyes spun in my head like they were dollar signs, just like at a uh, one-armed bandit. I swear to God, I was so excited. And for like the next, being a kid, for like the next five months, I'm like, when are we going to get those Green Lantern things? He's like, dude, you already bought the issue. It came and went. That was a promo. If they were going to do it, they would have got it. And my little heart broke into so many pieces at the idea that I could have had one of those Green Rings if someone just would have been, you know, just tell me where they are. Here's my money. Give me it. So I want my flight ring, okay? I want it to be gold and beautiful, and I want to wear it everywhere, and I want someone to ask me what it is, and I want to say, that's my Legion flight ring. What? I'm going to fly off now. And it does but... work, doesn't it? It does actually work. You can fly with these, right? This, that's the whole point, isn't it? Hey, well, look, man. I'm going to live stream from my rooftop. As soon as I get it, y'all get back to me. and <laughs> <laughs> We'll make sure we post that on the site. Will do. <laughs> All right, next up, Justice Society of America is returning. Uh, The Justice Society of America has not been seen since the New 52 relaunch in 2011. Scott Snyder recently tweeted regarding the JSA, I'm not just bringing them back in Justice League, though they are reintroduced and play a big role in Justice Doom War starting in August. I have much bigger plans for them. This is a team I've been waiting to write for a long time. It's Origins, First Missions, more to be announced soon so what do you guys uh think about this uh, announcement that just that the jsa is coming back uh under scott snyder uh, we're gonna start with you brad what do you think about all this oh yeah i i'm all for it uh and i'm going to hope that Stargirl will play a large role since she's got that li- you know the live action show coming out yes yeah, would and, be a perfect time to bring her you know, right, right. Back so I, I expect that she will play a big role and i really i really like the idea of going back and seeing some of the first missions and origins i think uh i think that there's a lot there's a lot of fertile ground there for uh what you can bring up and you know the stories you can tell uh and I, i'm interested to see you know that the role that they're going to play in uh in Doomwar too so happy to have them back yeah, and from the way he, you know, Snyder talks, it sounds like he's he's prepping for you know their own series, even though you know it's not confirmed or anything. He didn't actually say that, you know. But I, you know, getting a, a Justice Society of America series of, on its own, I think would be fantastic. Uh, Steve, what do you think about all this? As soon as I read Rebirth issue one and Johnny Thunder, and then having to wait months and months and months and doomsday clock and then the 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 last issue issue 10 with seeing them sat at the table the whole justice society and the fact that the legion's coming back as well 
this is just great. Where have they been? They were the first superhero team. Yes, people, the first. Everything we've read about has come from there. We would have no Justice League. We would have no Fantastic Four. We would have no anything without the Justice Society of America. And to finally be having them back, Jay Garrick with his shiny Mercury helmet and Dr. Midnight and Atom Smasher and Stargirl and, oh, man, yes, uh, finally. And to see the excitement, when you get a writer the calibre of Scott Snyder and you can just feel the excitement pouring off him in a tweet um, that he's going to be writing these characters and he's been killing it on Justice League. It, brilliant, especially the last few issues. Really, really good. Uh, that that excitement is contagious. It spreads to the reader. It, it's It's definitely hit me. And these delays with Doomsday Clocks, what's been delaying it? We should have had these back in October when Doomsday Clock was supposed to end. But listen, anticipation makes everything better. So, um, brilliant. I, I can't wait to read his take on the Justice Society and to have these characters finally back on a printed page where they belong. Really, really happy. What about you, Seth? Are you excited for the JSA to finally make their return? I'm so happy. This is where my heart lives. This is this is one of those things that just makes me thankful that someone like Scott Snyder can build up all this gloom and doom that's been going on with Justice League, all this threat of what happens when people turn to doom? What happens when they make a choice to, to go in that direction? What's the one thing that can counter that? Well, it's a history of these characters who I know and love, who to me, they represent that earliest heart, that indomitable spirit that came from World War II's greatest generation. These guys who went through something as challenging, and men and women who went through this challenging experience, then came out afterwards and said, what more can we do? And that's a spirit that I really feel is, is one that's needed if you're going to try and stop something like Doom and the kind of allies you're going to need in something like do more. But I also feel like they're a reminder of some of DC comics earliest roots. And just as Steve mentioned, the excitement, the anticipation that was built with uh, Johnny thunder and that, that just say, say you just say it already. And knowing that when you get the whole team together, there's so much that they've been a part of and so much history that they can kind of help close the circle on and yet also be such a cornerstone for. I mean, so many characters are second, third, fourth iterations of these originals, and getting the chance to have them back in our lives just, it really makes me happy. I'm already, even as we were describing it, I'm thinking back to that JSA special where it's it's them making the decision that they'll fight forever in limbo and always be trapped, always fighting the never-ending fight to stop Ragnarok and and how much of that history means to me now that I'll get to see them with Snyder who has done something amazing with the Justice League I mean he brought back Starman in a way that just makes me think to myself you love comics just like I do you love these characters who you want to see more of just the way I do who maybe you feel got a bad rap and that given a new opportunity in a bigger story or in a story that gets to showcase just how much they really mean to the DC universe, what he is capable of doing with the JSA in his current storyline, but this idea of having them continue on in their own book just makes me think that so much of what people feared was lost with Rebirth is gradually being found again. And 
through it, we're sort of coming back to our roots. And that's a really heartening thought for me. Uh, I really sort of just started gushing there. And I don't know if you can hear it, but like little bits of my heartbeat are sort of like echoing in my background of my talk here because that just makes me we smile. all feel the same way we all feel <laughs> the same way uh well it's it's good to me among good company then because it just makes me smile the thought that you know what do whatever you want to but the jsa they're still here they're still coming back they're always they're always there when you need them the most and that's what i feel they're really going to do and just as an added it's a, such a smart strategic thing to introduce them now begin the buildup for the interest as mentioned about Stargirl, but also there's going to be at least a couple of characters who are going to play a prominent role in the upcoming Black Adam film and bringing them back into the, the common sort of, you know, understanding of these characters for the general audience and providing an opportunity to start telling their stories so we can get ready to understand and see their interpretation on the big screen. It's going to be easier now than it would be trying to find books that, haven't been printed in quite a long time and whose stories could do with a little bit of modern telling and modern introduction and also connection to those upcoming storylines that we're, we're going to see on the big screen. And that's my last bit. I'm shutting up. <laughs> and I mean, you know, getting Scott Snyder to do this, I've, I've loved pretty much everything that he's done lately. So I, it, it's really amped up my anticipation for, for this uh, return, having him kind of be behind it, all, all of this. So, all right, we're going to move on to our next story, which is Superman Year One got a trailer released. So I just wanted to get your guys' uh, thoughts on this trailer and uh, you know, whether or not you're excited for this series. Uh, we're going to start with Brad. Uh, are you excited for the series, and what do you think of this trailer? Yes, I'm very excited, and the trailer just made me more excited. Uh, the idea of uh, a Frank Miller story with John Romita Jr. art, especially in the context of like a year one story, uh, it seems to me like a match made in heaven. Uh, I, I've always been a fan of Romita's art, uh, Romita Jr.'s art. Uh, I think ever since like uh, the days when he did Daredevil, like his take on Typhoid Mary was always one of my one of my favorites and kind of always stuck out in my mind. Uh, and you know, from what I've seen, you know, because of this trailer, and it's just it's going to be. Uh, it's definitely going to be worth picking up. Yeah, uh, you know, I I love that we've you know recently been getting a lot of these comic book trailers. You know, something that you know you didn't really get too many of in the past. But I feel like over the last few months we've just gotten tons of them, and uh, I really love that they're leaning into this sort of marketing for their comic books, especially for some of their uh, you know got more different lines like the zoom and ink and the black label type stuff. So uh, I've been really enjoying that. Steve, what are your thoughts on uh, Superman year one and the trailer that was released? Yeah. Like I said earlier, uh, speaking to Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. Um, and the interviews are on both websites. When they said things like you'll be seeing Kal-El's rocket ship from the baby's perspective when you'll be seeing things like the first ever meeting between Batman and Superman when you see Superman join the Marines as a Navy SEAL because Krypton was a dry world and he and you know, where Smallville was uh, in the, the Midwest and he never saw the sea and we're going to see Superman discover Atlantis you know when you hear stuff like that directly from the horse's mouth you cannot 
not be excited. And then you get that trailer with the beautiful John Romita Jr. art brought to life, moving, flying, and everything else that goes with it. Um, we've got the first issue. I am counting the days for issues two and three. So really happy about that. And like I said, Josh, you're right. These comic book trailers are really spoiling us, but it's smart marketing because that's what people who live in the YouTube generation want to see. And if that gets people into their comic book stores, forking over their hard-earned cash and buying some comic books, I'm all for it. Absolutely. What about you, Seth? What uh, what have you been thinking about these? Well, I think the trailer was great. I think it was really smart. I loved the way it took some of those beautiful moments from the book and gave them that animated life, that just little breath and spark that you can feel wanting to happen on the page, but you know, just can't happen in a comic book. But here in this medium, you can sort of see those elements come to life. And regarding the story, uh, Red Book One really enjoyed so very, very much. And I think I think really when it comes to everything that I'm seeing, I love it all. The only thing that sticks for me about the trailer, and this is just me, is right at the beginning when it shows like sort of a digital outline that's kind of like a cartoon sort of baby sort of thing right at the beginning of it. I kind of got a little the baby cut out. Yes. Yeah, it, it felt a little manga in some way that just threw me for the tiniest loop because when you read that book one, there's a lot of interest and excitement, but it's also very uh, balanced with this mixture of fear and how how that sort of fear is matched by these different things that this pod that's taking him sort of knows to intuitively respond to. And I felt more of that when I was reading the book than I did that childlike nature at the very beginning of the trailer. But other than that, other than that one moment where I thought to myself, that feels like a disconnect. Everything else after that, I thought was just absolutely gorgeous. And the book itself, I think a really great introduction to to the character just from a, a new sort of take. And I've loved uh, so much about what I've seen whenever a good writer takes a character and just says, consider the possibility of just a few slight changes and what that can mean for the possibility of the story. And I think it's a really great first chapter. And I think the trailer does a great introduction for anyone considering it because so much of what's in there is what you get to experience in this first book. And so much more that's hinted at is what you get to look forward to for books two and three. Fantastic. And our last story for the day is DC orders more Dial H for Hero and Wonder Twins. Uh, These two Wonder Comics titles have now garnered enough love to warrant doubling their initial runs from six to 12 issues. So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Have you read uh, either of these two titles and uh, your thoughts on them doubling their runs? Uh, We're going to start with Seth. I have read both books. I actually included, uh, let's see, I included one for the spinner rack. Uh, That was Dial H. And I recently, actually, this last time around, I included the Wonder Twins. Wonder Twins actually really surprised me recently. I felt that their story, while while in many ways I found myself just sort of going through the first few issues, it's, it's shown these little flashes of brilliance. Like when Zan's on a date. And he doesn't know that the girl that he's with is actually hooking back up with her old boyfriend. And the whole time he's like, whatever, dude, I don't care. I don't even care. That's how cool I am. 
I love that sort of response. And it was just so uh, opposite to what I'd been expecting that more recently there's even been a different shift, which is that it's had the characters of uh, Philomath and Polymath, a father and daughter relationship that's sort of shown that, you know, he's, he's become forced to work for Lex Luthor. Didn't want to, but because uh, he's a black scientist, he feels like he hasn't been given all the opportunities and that there's even a reference to people so excited about who he is by his name. But then when he sits down for the interview, he's suddenly not a right fit for the position and how the experience for Polly witnessing what's happened to her father causes her to turn towards a, a direction of evil. And I really felt that there was just these great little snapshots of social commentary that I honestly never anticipated coming out of a Wonder Twins book. And yet when I see it done the way it's done, it's artful, it's smart, and it's not preachy. It's designed to actually move the story forward and show what happens in these very interesting ways. Whereas by comparison, Dial H started strong. I thought the first issue or two recently, I, I wasn't in love with the most recent issues, but I like the potential behind this story going really far. So Wonder Twins, I'm not surprised by. Dial H, I feel in some ways, needs to prove a little bit more to me. But I think it deserves the opportunity to, to do that with more issues. And as far as Wonder Twins, I believe they've earned it. So I'm really excited for them and proud for that accomplishment. All right, and Brad, have you checked out these titles? And uh, what do you think about these uh, them doubling their uh, initial runs? Yeah, uh, you know, sadly, I haven't. But they both of them were always in my mind is something that I definitely wanted to check out as soon as they came out in trade in the trades. Uh, and from, you know, from what you guys are saying and from what I've read, the wonder twins book is really good. So I, I kind of like the idea that there's a good wonder twins book out there that can reinterpret those characters in a cool way, because they were always, even when I was a kid, they were always the weakest link to me in, in the Super <laughs> Friends cartoon. So the fact that they could be brought back in, in a way that people are liking and the fact that they can double up on what was originally ordered, uh, I'm, I'm excited about. Now, my favorite of the, um, you know, the, the Bendis line is, is Naomi. So yes. I hope that, that that can get extended or, you know, I don't know if they're if I'm behind the loop on that, that you know that there was news released about that, but I, I I'm all for there being more Naomi stories. Yeah, I haven't heard any news here, about here. Naomi uh, being yeah. extended, but I I fully agree. Na yeah, just like you, Naomi is the one from the Wonder Comics line that, uh, that I have checked out. I haven't had a chance to check out uh, Dial H or Wonder Twins yet, but the way Seth has talked about it, man, I, I definitely I, I definitely think I'm gonna uh, check check both those out. Um, Steve, what about you? What do you think about uh, this news? And have you read either of these titles? All of them. Um, the Wonder Comics line is one of my favourites. Again, for those specific reasons of having something you can give to the next generation that they can really enjoy. But like Seth said, there's lots there for a, a seasoned reader to, to, to get out of it as well. Uh, Naomi and Wonder Twins are the two strongest books for me. Absolutely. Closely followed by Young Justice, which I think is probably the best thing Bendis is writing above and beyond the Superman stuff, which is okay, but again, isn't matching for me personally, what uh, Peter J. Tomasi and uh, Dan Jurgens were doing 
before he took over. Uh, but again, um, I, I, I did enjoy Dial H for Hero because, again, it's one of those comics that I grew up with and I like the modern twist on it. And whenever you turn a page and see a brand new character with their own brand new origin <laughs> and stuff like that, I, I just really dig that. And the fact that these writers are bringing these characters out, brand new ones, every issue uh, really made me happy. So if we're getting more Wonder Twins, awesome. If we're getting more Diet Vero, great. If we then get the news, we're getting more Naomi. We can't have a Wonder Comics line with just Young Justice. Uh, yeah. We've got to have all those books. They've got to continue. So the fact we're definitely getting two back for an extended run, yeah, very positive news. I like that a lot. All right. Well, this was a, a great episode of DC Comics News Podcast. Uh, I would like to thank all of my hosts, Seth, Brad, Steve, you've all been wonderful. And I want to give a special thanks to Jason Inman for stopping in, giving us a great interview and uh, hanging out and talking some movie news with us earlier. Cool and guy. So where can uh, everybody find you guys on the Internet? Uh, we're going to start with Steve. Where can everybody find you? Um, you can find me just by simply searching Steve J Array or Fantastic Universes on your Googles or on your uh, search engines of choice. And of course, I do reviews and interviews on DC Comics News and I'm editor in chief on our sister site, Dark Knight News, which is a lot more uh, Batman related. I like Batman. And you can catch me on Twitter at L Steve, which is E L underscore S T E E V O. Wait, you like Batman? I swear you never told <laughs> me. I know, right? <laughs> no, no, I can vouch for this. You really information. does. Every week I bring out something <laughs> brand new that you've never heard before about me. I've just got so many layers. I'm like an onion. Or an ogre. No, definitely an onion. <laughs> so I can make you All right, uh, Seth, where can everybody find you? Hey, yeah. As far as the first place to check, I'd always recommend checking back here on a weekly basis where I host the Spinner Rack. It's my attempt to justify my top five picks every week from the titles published by DC Comics. If you want to find me elsewhere, you can just type in the name Seth Singleton and Story, or you can look for me on something like Twitter, where the number one, the word more, and the word Singleton is how you'll find me. All right. And Brad, where can everybody find you? You can find me uh, writing uh, news reviews at DC Comics News. You can find me on Twitter at uh, FlickyB1. That's where I'm at. <laughs> All right. And you can follow me at uh, JP Rayner on Twitter. And you can follow DC Comics News on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube at DC Comics News. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast network. Uh, we are on all the major podcast platforms now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So head over and subscribe to uh, the podcast, and please rate and review. And be sure to also check out the Spinner Rack right here on DC Comics News Podcast Network with our very own Seth Singleton, where he breaks down his top five books for the week. And as always, read more comics. Thanks, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>